Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? As you take a big old swig. There it is. Roll Tide. You, you timed that just right, didn't you? I like it. Well, I, I kind of was shocked. You knew we were going to be talking, but you still chugged anyway, so I'll do it now, too. Well, I was waiting for, for the long, obnoxious pause in which I would have time to, hell, I could drink the whole damn thing. Yeah, I hear it doesn't take you very long. Speaking of not taking very long, this topic today didn't win a poll. Uh, we actually promised you Hogan 88 back around WrestleMania time. Some terrible storms took over the state of Texas that week, and we weren't able to uh, get the entire Hogan story out there. So... We're making a little bit of a two-parter. If you haven't already, go check out Hogan 87 in the archives. And to start today's show, you heard a commercial for the Million Dollar Man episode. We're going to be talking a lot about Ted DiBiase today. And if you'd like to go ahead and hear the rest of this story, uh, we recommend the Million Dollar Man episode. And of course, the Mega Powers, one of my very favorite stories from Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man from 1988 over to 1989 how it came together, how it exploded, and one of the very early Pritchard shows. It's available in the archives as well. Uh, But we didn't do a poll this week because as people are listening to this right now, Bruce, you are on your way back from India for Impact Wrestling. Do I have that right? For to be, yes, very much so. Oh, man, I hope nobody in India is listening. Do you think we have listeners in India? Oh, no, I know for a fact that we do. They, they love something to wrestle with in India and they love the Mr. Mr. Conrad. Oh, I'm not doing that. Mr. Conrad hey, is not doing that. Hey, 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 Conrad. Oh gosh. Maybe I do phone center for first family. Oh, if you haven't already check out last week's Eric Bischoff episode at the end of the show, Matt Coon put together something awesome. It's Punjabi boss, man, the theme song. Uh, it's worth checking out. If you haven't already, Matt's still helping kids too, and you can help him out. All right, Bruce, it's time for what happened when Hulk Hogan ran wild on the world wrestling federation in 1988 brother. Of course, Hogan 87 is available now in the archives. So go check that out. If you haven't already, 
Uh, but first, we need to sort of set the stage for you. 1987 was a huge year for the WWF, and they were crushing Saturday night's main events and the ratings. They had their famous pile driver album, of course, the biggest WrestleMania of all time. And it had Hogan Andre in the main event. And towards the end of the years, we covered the WWF created the survivor series pay-per-view to try to squash Jim Crockett promotion, Starcade, And we close 87 with the WWF drawing huge houses everywhere. Uh, Bruce, it's hard to believe, but 1988 was nearly 30 years ago. How old do you feel right now, Bruce? Fuck you, Conrad. Um, well, let me try for a, a safer answer here. The number two and the number three events of the WWE each year are historically what, Bruce? Well, now it's probably SummerSlam and Royal Rumble. Uh, there you go. And both of those were curated in 1988. So before we get to the Rumble, let's talk about early January. And I should mention briefly that our friend Chris over at WrestlingThings.com helped with this week's research Uh, You can go check out the world's only auction and merchandise site dedicated to wrestling. He's got DVDs, figures, and more at wrestlingthings.com. He's a good dude, and when I plan to unload some of my collection, I'll be listing that stuff at wrestlingthings.com. We kind of go ahead and start with Hogan getting the year started off working on January 2nd against the one-man gang. And we've talked about him a little bit on the show before, uh, but not a lot. Why don't you think he had a longer run in the WWF? Well, I think he had a pretty good run there, whether it be one man gang or Akeem, you know, big George gray had a great run, but one man gang as a character in coming in at the time, I personally thought he did have a hell of a good run there for a while. Well, with the doctor style slick, I'm not arguing he didn't have a good run, but you see other guys who, you know, have a 10 year stay there. And for whatever reason, that wasn't the case for him. Uh, did he, what was the rap on him? It's not like, at least from a fan perspective, we heard about him hurting guys or being difficult to do business with was Vince, not a fan of his look. Uh, was he difficult to travel with or was it just something where creative just kind of ran out of ideas? No, not at all. None of those things. George was, everybody loved working with him, never hurt anybody, and was a great guy. I think more than anything, it was simply, he got tired of the travel. Big guy, was used to traveling in his car, had always been used to being in the territories and being able to be home at least a few times during the week. And now all of a sudden, he's traveling the world, squeezing into you know coach seats in the back. And that's a hard life for a big man to do. And it was something that he just got tired of. Can you imagine being on a three person row seated with the big boss man and a team? Yeah. And you're in the middle seat, man. That'd be a tough day. Um, which of those did you prefer one man gang or a team? I feel like this kind of tells me a lot about you as a wrestling fan, because I have an answer and a lot of people hate it. Well, I enjoyed Akeem, but I always liked the one-man gang. I, I thought that the one-man gang as big, nasty heel worked for me. Man, I, I freaking love Akeem. Uh, uh, he's my favorite. I mean, he's basically my dad, though. I mean, Well, but- essentially, you patterned your, enti- your, your entire style and your entire look around Akeem. Yeah, that's it. I intended to uh, become a big, fat yeah. guy and grow a beard, and I, I shuck and jive around the house all day. Yeah, that's my, that's my deal. I'm the Alabama dream, baby. And you can be you know too it. over at bruceprichard.com. 
Uh, next up would be TV right here in Huntsville at the Von Braun Civic Center. They drew 8,500, Bruce, which shocked me in doing my research because they haven't drawn that in over a decade here. Uh, anyway, on the show, Hogan and Macho are with Liz in a handicap match against Honky and the Hart Foundation. Uh, we haven't talked about it much on the show here before, but Hogan was responsible for helping get the Honky Talk Man in the WWF and then later his gig with WCW. Why do you think Hogan was so fond of the Honky Tonk Man? I think they just liked him. I want to say that they first met when Hogan was in the Tennessee territory and they became friendly, old rock and roll Wayne Ferris. But Wayne was working the gimmick, the Honky Tonk Man gimmick in Calgary. And Hogan had seen it and was highly entertained by it. So he thought this guy's perfect for the WWF and decided to bring him in. When Hogan pitched Vince on Honky Tonk Man, what do you think that sounded like? Well, let me tell you something, brother. Yeah, that's a hard one. I, I think he just, he loved the entertainment value of the honky talk man. He could sing, he could dance, he could do it all. When you heard and Vince, Vince saw honky as a baby face, which is hilarious. And I can't wait for us to cover in a honky talk man episode. Uh, it's often been debated by Ric Flair, but Hogan did indeed have a match with Rick Rude. It happened in Boston. It was even on a VHS release on January 9th is when the match happened, 1988. Uh, it's actually on the Hulk Hogan unreleased matches DVD set these days. Hogan won in just under 12 minutes, and it would happen again on January 18th in the main event. And we've talked about Rick Rude a great deal on our Rick Rude episode, of course, also available in the archives. But I'm going to ask again here, uh, why don't you think Hogan worked with Rude more often? Was Rude not uh, big enough to be believable for Hulk, quote unquote? Or was Hulk nervous that maybe a cool heel may actually get cheers from smart fans? That wasn't necessarily any kind of an issue at that time, especially with the audiences that we were drawing. There, there weren't a lot of smart fans in 88 at that time. So we, we didn't have the problem. There wasn't the internet. There weren't a lot of people. There would always be a handful of people, especially when you'd go to Wheeling, West Virginia, <laughs> there was a group of people there that liked to heckle, I guess, if you want to say that, like to heckle the baby faces, things of that nature. But that wasn't, that was never really an issue. We never really worried about the heel being more popular than Hulk Hogan. Um, not until much later did that even become an issue. I just think it was more a clash of styles and simply Hogan had other people to work with at the time. Well, I know a lot of people like to buy into that rumor and innuendo. Uh, let's talk about, um, Hogan working with the one man gang and DiBiase because it was pretty much exclusive towards the first part of 1988. He worked all the house shows against either one man gang or DiBiase. Uh, we've covered before that Hogan loved working against a big, nasty monster heel, but just how hot of a heel was this million dollar man character in early 1988? He was, he was on a scale of one to 10. He was probably an 11. DiBiase was red hot coming in and Ted played the part to perfection. And of course we discussed that in the archives of the million dollar man podcast that we have and it's teddy was just so damn good at being a heel he was a big guy he had the entourage of virgil and also andre for a part of that time so ted could carry heat wasn't afraid of heat and was 
able to make Hogan look like a million bucks every time they were in the ring. So let's talk about the Royal Rumble. You guys did essentially three practice runs of this in Rochester, Buffalo, and Landover in the week leading up to the first Rumble. Uh, that took place, of course, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Uh, we know the last one had 30 men, and all three were won by Don Morocco. Uh, this is essentially to work the bugs out before the big show, right? That's why you do a match like this ahead of time? It was simply done to be able to let guys get used to it a little bit. Yeah. But we also we also wanted to see if the attraction would draw. And we really didn't know because you had no visual to back it up. We had, I think we had done one before that that they had tried. And then going into Hamilton when we were going to do the USA special, uh, booked several just so everybody could kind of get get used to the concept. Uh, the other two of those, uh, not the 30 man, but the other two that Morocco won were called bunkhouse battle Royals. And Bruce, I know you're going to deny this, but this has to be in response to the bunkhouse stampede battle Royals that dusty Rhodes had booked himself in. Uh, and he won all of them for Jim Crockett in 85, 86 and 87. And they're actually doing a bunkhouse stampede pay-per-view here on January 24th, 1988, the same day as the Royal rumble in the WWF's backyard of Uniondale, New York. Uh, what was the common thinking about JCP running their first non-Starcade pay-per-view and then doing it in New York? Well, I think it was a sign of, of war and them being a lot more aggressive coming after us and trying to come into our backyard. But as I say that, you know, you got to preface it with, Whose backyard, whose backyard is what, whose front yard is what, you know, we're in the United States of America and you you have the freedom to go out and operate wherever the hell you want to. So they had every right to go in there, but for us, it was kind of like, okay, that's the first declaration of war. They couldn't get into the garden. So they went into the next building that they could get into in New York, which was uh, long Island. Do you realize how silly what you just said was? They were doing they were doing a pay per view called Starcade just two months prior to this, and you guys created and ran Survivor Series head to head and made the cable systems choose. And you think them running a pay per view in New York two months later is a declaration of war? Yeah, we didn't run we didn't run our pay per view in Charlotte, North Carolina, or Atlanta, Georgia. You're in it head to head on pay per view across the nation. And strong okay. on the pay-per-view companies. Okay. Just to, you know how inconsistent you are sometimes. Just a minute ago, you said there is no front yard, backyard. It's America. It's the United States. And it is like, America. It is the United States. That's, what, that's why I said it. I was making that very point you're trying to make right now. You can run wherever the hell you want to. But then you just said backyard. We didn't run as short. <laughs> well, no, that was considered our backyard. Um, but I'm saying that they came in. they came into what was traditionally a WWF market to run their first pay-per-view. We didn't go into a traditionally WCW or NWA market to run our first survivor series. Why are in the house shows where those called bunkhouse battle Royals instead of I just, no idea. it's gotta be because of bunkhouse stampede. It has to be, uh, Pat, no, cause I, I tell you from that probably was just simply something that either the marketing people did or that Howard came up with and, Hypothetically, out there. If, if Impact decided to run a Regal Rumble, people wouldn't say 
that that's ripping off the WWF? I think they would. Of course they would. Uh, Pat Patterson is often credited with the creation of the Royal Rumble. Uh, when and how did that come about? Do you remember the details of the concept, the pitch, or the planning that you can share with us? Because most people listening to this have it as one of their very favorite pay-per-views. It was, it was just an idea that Pat had to basically do a reverse battle royal where you start off with two guys and you add guys as the match goes on. Where in a traditional battle royal, you start with everybody and it gets fewer and fewer as the battle goes on. It was just a crazy idea that Pat had, and he was very passionate about it. And finally, it came into realization. It died the first time that they did it. Yeah, it didn't do well. That's what I wanted to ask you about. The concept existed prior to this bunkhouse pay-per-view being announced, right? This wasn't. Uh, this was just the right time to debut it. It's not like Vince got everybody together and said, "Think of an attraction to counteract bunkhouse stampede," right? No, no. This was something that they had tried before, and. It was a unique concept that they, it, it just didn't work. And it was the first time, not a lot of promotion. Maybe they didn't really think it out. And this was an opportunity to try it out again. And let's try and get the bugs out of it. Let's do several of them, get the bugs out of it, and then do it on the USA special. But it was designed to be something different, kind of like Survivor Series was teams of five strive to survive. This was another concept match that was unique and not just one-on-one matchups. Uh, hypothetically, um, were you there when this first pitch happened? I'm a little confused based on the way you worded that because you said they instead of we. And normally you say we tried it, but there you said they. Did they try this pre-Bruce? Oh, yeah. And this was... Basically, when Vince and Pat were doing all of the creative and I was doing TV, I actually wrote this. The Royal Rumble special on USA was the first live television that I ever wrote 100% by myself. And, of course, primetime and everything else that we had done up until that point was all taped and the uh, pay-per-view itself, WrestleMania 4 and Survivor Series and all that. Those were pay-per-views, but this was the first live TV that I had ever written. That's pretty cool that we're actually talking about that now. I can't wait for us to cover that at some point. I know you weren't there, but you know, that's what we do on this show. Hypothetically, if you were there to hear pitch, hear uh, Pat pitch Vince, this idea, what might that sound like? Well, actually I was there when, when he pitched the idea, you know, to do it here. And it was out of pace and you take it. What you do is we do, you take the battle Royal, but we do it in reverse. Instead of starting with everybody, we only start with the two guys. And then every couple minutes, another guy come out and then another guy come out. And then in the middle, we go, hey, fuck you, douchebag. You're eliminated. Get out. And then another guy come out. And then at the very end, you fill the fucking ring up with everybody. And then the match starts all over again until there's just one guy. I love you for that. That's why this show's so great. Thank you for that. Uh, I think sometimes uh, history sort of forgets that this Royal Rumble that we all love was really just created to undermine Jim Crockett promotion and essentially, you know, essentially sabotage their pay-per-view. Um, the concept being why pay money for their battle Royal when this one is free on USA, right? 
it was also a way to be able to give USA Network something special because they were in competition with WTBS and it was an opportunity for them to compete with TBS. And it was that's how they looked at it. It was a TBS and a Ted Turner product, even though it was owned by Jim Crockett at the time. He hadn't sold out to Turner completely. That USA was all in favor of, hey, no, let's run a special. So, Let's get the wrestling audience. So Vince calls USA and convinces them that this is the move to do it. And he's doing it from a wrestling standpoint, but he uses this TBS versus USA angle as a way to sell them on the concept. Sure. Um, it's all very flattering. I'm sure to the American dream, dusty Rhodes. what would he say about you guys curating the Royal rumble and offering it for free in response to his bunkhouse stampede pay-per-view? Baby, they're trying to compete with the dream, baby. But we got we got the bunkhouse. See, the bunkhouse stampede is a little bit different because at the end of the day, somebody gonna get a big boot, a big old fucking nice cowboy boot that somebody gonna get, and I think that's gonna be me, American Dream, Benny Mac, Patty Pat. They can all do their thing up in New York City, but the dream going to come in and take Long Island by storm with my gigantic boot in the bunkhouse stampede. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is going to be a good show. Uh, I was fascinated to learn how crazy this WWF schedule was. We've heard about that a lot, but actually digging into it, man, it's nuts. Here's what I mean. Even on a day where you guys are debuting a brand new show, the Royal Rumble, a huge show, you're doing a double shot. You ran Halifax, Nova Scotia earlier in the afternoon, and then the Rumble here in Hamilton, Ontario. And they did a double shot the day before that, too. Just how brutal was the schedule in 1988? It, it was a little rugged, but it was a weekend. You had double shots and TV wasn't the mass production that it is now. It was matches and it was interviews. So the guys, they weren't doing a lot of pre-production and there was no great detailed writing that went into these things. It was simply another show. So a double shot wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that, that out of the ordinary Shit, we would do double shots sometimes where we would do Philadelphia in the spectrum. And then we would go to Boston or we would go to Long Island or the Garden and then do do TV in both places. Yeah, we're actually going to cover some of these crazy shots through this uh, episode here today. Was was this all Vince or, or was somebody else pushing hard for more dates? Is this somebody in the office who is booking the thing and realizes, hey, Vince, Now's the time to mash the gas or is Vince kind of leading the charge for more shows? Well, weekends are money. And especially in those days when you've got a hot property, you're in close proximity and buildings uh, are available, utilize it as best that you can. So if you can make something where either there's a convenient flight that can get guys there and you're not in the middle of winter 
where you got to worry about snowstorms and everything else. And always, always had the proviso where you could drive there in three hours if you had to. Because you can make that. You can make that work. So it was go grab the money. Uh, work, 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 work. Grab the money wherever you can. And if it's in a big enough market that can sustain it, go for it. I had never heard the three-hour rule of thumb, so that's good to know. Um, I'm pretty sure there was a lot of snow in Hamilton and Nova Scotia here, though. Just freestyling. Um, who in the business do you think love travel the most that would have been on that 88 roster? Does anybody stand out as being a guy who just lives for the road? Oh, wow. I think, I think that there were a lot of us that, that lived for the road just because it was the job and it was what it was. I can't think of anybody that really just looked forward to waking up at five o'clock in the morning to go catch that seven o'clock flight well let's go the other way who hated it the most that's easier to answer i'm sure yeah again uh that was pretty much everybody okay it it sucked i mean it, it was it was a grind it was an absolute grind because you just people wonder and they they ask you about the drugs and and the lifestyle of a professional wrestler back in the day and I hate to say drugs were a necessity, but they were an everyday part of our life because you you took something to get up and then you took something to keep going. And then at the end of the night, you needed something to wind yourself back down to get a couple of hours of sleep, to get up in the morning, to take something else, to go do it all over again. And it became a vicious cycle. Now, listen. This is something we've not veered off into, but I'm so glad you brought it up and you did it the way you did. Uh, we're not going to celebrate uh, or champion the use of or advocate any uh, of the use of these drugs that we're talking about here today. But I'm just curious when guys tell that story, and I've heard it many times, very similar to the way you just said it, they always use pronouns, pal. I mean, they're very broad. They don't ever get specific. And I don't want you to give a name, but when you're saying you take something to wake up, example i'll take a handful of ephedrine okay take a handful of speed caffeine man take take a ton of ephedrine um some guys snorted cocaine and so you do that as soon as you wake up and then you need something before you work out what would that be same thing and then you would you know get ready for your match are you going to do anything there uh, again same thing man a lot of lot of ephedrine those white crosses you know that the the truckers always took yeah a lot of that going on, a lot of speed. Uh, and then after the match, 12-pack of beer? matches, man, yeah, you go grab a beer or maybe take uh, some muscle relaxers and painkillers and smoke a few joints, and, and you got to wind down and relax. So we've heard in the 90s uh, people were big into somas. What was the big deal in the 80s as far as painkillers and muscle relaxers in the wrestling business? Uh, probably pain pills, Percocets, and... Vicodin? Uh, Vicodin. Well, you know, I think Vicodin came a little bit after that. Vicodin probably came in the 90s. Um, but it was Percocet was a big one. Uh, Meanie Greenies. It is funny. I was with a, a gentleman from the uh, Major League Baseball last night. And I, I was talking to him about similar what we're talking about now. And he, he went through the list of the ball players and No shit. Same conversation you and I are having right now. 
but him talking about mini greenies and quaaludes and, and the old drugs from the from like late seventies wow. and early eighties that we did. And, um, that was, you know, that was the way of life, whatever, whatever was in vogue at the time, whatever would help ail you, man. And what, uh, what would they take to wind them down at the end of the night after they've, they've calmed down a little bit, they've had that half a half rack of beer, uh, right before they go to bed. What's doing the trick in the eighties. Halcyon. God, what a diet, man. Uh, yeah. I know that you're not ever one to play victim, but I'm curious. Can you at least be honest? I mean, do you put any blame at all on the schedule for the substance abuse we would hear about years later? Obviously there's freedom of choice and these guys were big boys, but just a few minutes ago, you said, I hate to say it was a necessity, but it was just there every day. And that is a little bit of a cop out. People could certainly choose to say no, as the Reagans would have wanted everybody to do in 88. But realistically, do you think that the schedule had any percentage of blame? Not an overwhelming, it's not all the schedule is 10% the schedule's fault. Can you give me that? Again, you got a choice. You got a choice. You, you don't have to do it and you can get through it and you can muscle your way on through it. Let me ask there, you this. Those, there were those of us that we had a choice and speaking for myself, I chose to just say, well, hell, if I take this, I'll feel better. So sure. I'm going to take that. I don't want you to indict anybody and say, oh, this guy was all screwed up. Let's go the other way. Can you point to one person? And I'm not saying make a list of everybody. I want you to name one and only one who, you know, was clean as a whistle 24 seven, never did shit, but Diet Coke. George Gray, one man gang. There you go. Uh, gorilla was supposed to be on commentary for this first Royal rumble, but he had a mild heart attack and there right? were probably a few of them, but there were no, yeah, there that's were probably more. There were probably more of us that were, that were looking for help, but, uh, yeah, I, I've never known him to, to do anything. I, I, I don't think that the one man gang really was a one man gang and he was the only clean person there. I just, that's why I wanted to say, we're just naming one, not all of them. Yeah. There's probably dozens or four, but we're just going to name the one. Uh, gorilla have a heart attack right before the rumble. What happened on that deal? I think it was just a scare. I don't know that it was a full blown, full blown heart attack. I think it was just a scare. Okay. Uh, so we see Hulk Hogan and Andre, the giant do their contract signing for their return match. And this happens at the Royal rumble, the USA special we're talking about. And, uh, this match is going to happen on February the 5th for NBC's main event. Uh, Bruce, as far as you remember, and this, I could be wrong here, but I think this is the first time a contract signing was done inside a WWF ring. Do I have that right? Do you remember whose idea this was? I believe so. It, the whole idea behind the Royal Rumble show itself was to do other things other than just wrestling matches. We right. didn't want to present a wrestling show. We wanted to present a USA special, the Royal Rumble, that was themed in concept that's why we had the contract signing. That's why we had the Dino Bravo uh, bench press contest, and then the Royal Rumble match itself to give to give the show a unique feel. So instead of doing a traditional contract signing, put it in the ring, and it was a way to have star power on that show with your two biggest stars, Hulk and Andre. The rematch, get them on the show. 
And by doing it in the ring, it presented an aura of, well, anything can happen. You could have physicality. This thing could blow up. Right. Do you remember whose idea it was to put it in the ring? Because obviously it worked out. They're still doing it in every promotion all these years later. I either Vince or Pat. Uh, how would Vince explain the difference between Saturday night's main event and the main event? One's alive. One's one's not the, the main event was live hang on, hang on, in prime time. I know what you want. <laughs> Damn, don't fucking, wait, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Vince say it? God damn it. The main event is live and in prime time. And Saturday night's main event is a entertainment spectacular on Saturday night, late night TV. Thank you. Was that so hard? Listen, put that fucking God, ball man. on your, on your nose and dance seal. Come on. I don't, I don't have it. Uh, that red ball nose day was the other day and I had my red ball nose, but my son took it away and Wait, hang on. Your son put red balls on your nose. Yeah, it was red nose ball. Wait, red so you, ball you shaved nose. him a week ago, and this week he's putting his ball. What are you doing over there? Shucky ducky quack quack. Roll Tide. Uh, the very next night, the WWF sold out Madison Square Garden for 19,750 fans to see Hulk Hogan and Bam Bam Bigelow tag against Ted DiBiase and Virgil. This was interesting to me because the WWF would debut SummerSlam that August at Madison Square Garden. And they had three separate shows after this, but before SummerSlam, uh, all at Madison Square Garden. And Hogan was on none of them. Uh, why don't you think Hogan was booked at the home arena for any of those uh, any of those three shots in between? Probably simply because he was either somewhere else or just give him some time off and rest him for the market. So when we came back at SummerSlam, we were going to be guaranteed to sell out with Hogan being there. I don't know why, but stuff like that fascinates me. It seems like, you know, your biggest star, your biggest town, your most special arena. Nah, I don't book him. Pass. I also found it weird that Hulk didn't work Baltimore in 1988. That's always been a pretty good town for you guys, but for whatever reason, he didn't work the Baltimore arena. Uh, what's, what's the scoop on that? You got any insight as to why Hulk avoided, uh, avoided Baltimore in 88? I have no idea. This probably didn't work out on his bookings. I don't know if it was did, like a, run, did we run Washington DC with what? him there? That's probably why. Uh, the day after uh, Madison Square Garden sells out, they sell out Hershey with Andre and DiBiase taking on Hogan and Bigelow. Uh, it was there like a rule of thumb here in '88 of how you booked Andre and alternating nights. It feels like when I did my research, most of the time, with one exception, throughout the entire year, it would be like work a show Friday off on Saturday, work a show Sunday off on Monday. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't there. He was just outside the ring. But as far as putting the tights on, stepping through the ropes, that only happened in alternating nights in 88. That was to be able to give Andre a rest and not have him go out. He couldn't. He couldn't compete every night. For him to get up and, and literally get dressed and in his gear and put his boots on and get in the ring and do all of that was something he could not do every night. If Andre asked for the night off, what might that sound like? No work, boss. The er is what makes it. Uh, All right, this is what everybody tuned in to hear. February 5th, 1988. Uh, This coming February, man, it's the 30th anniversary of this iconic night in the history of the wrestling business. 
I say iconic for many reasons. Uh, we're going to get into all of them here. It's NBC's main event from Indianapolis. And despite the wrestling lore, the show didn't sell out, which just amazes me, especially in hindsight. It was a Friday night. It was Hogan Andre, and it was less than a year after WrestleMania three. But if you look at pictures from that night, you'll see a ton of empty seats in the upper deck. And you specifically see this. If you ever come across a picture of Andre with the world title over his shoulder, uh, look over his shoulder, tons of empty seats. Why don't you think this show sold out, Bruce? Maybe they just didn't want to see the match. I don't know. Isn't that, isn't that just... weird though? The biggest match in history was it, was Indy a soft market for you guys at this time? Or was it just, Hey, how did, I just saw that. I don't need to see it again. Well, I, you know, they didn't just see it. I think that everybody anticipated that no matter where you put that attraction, that it would have sold out. Yeah. I mean, I would think um, so. So what do you think gets the blame? So to speak, I, people just didn't want to see it. I mean, I'm not, it's that simple. And there was shitty weather that night that I do remember. Okay. We actually had people that were, uh, stranded in Indy for a couple of days beyond that, that couldn't get out. Um, we got out, we actually had a charter and we were able to get out that night. And it's worth but mentioning, and I feel like this gets overlooked a lot. In 88, the business was different than it is now. There was significant walk-up business in 88, right? There, there, there was, and the weather was god-awful horrible. However, I mean, I still would have thought that attraction would have sold the damn thing yeah. out in advance. Sure. I think everybody thinks that. I mean, in hindsight especially. Um, first of all, this is big for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's on NBC. Number two, it's a weeknight. Number three, it's prime time. And maybe biggest of all, this is the first time in 33 years wrestling has been on network TV during prime time. How big of a deal was this to Vince and Dick Ebersol? Huge. Absolutely huge. Because this was an opportunity to show them. We were doing great ratings with Saturday night's main event in the off week that Saturday night live would take back in those days. And we would run Saturday night's main event once a month, um, and do those specials. So they did great numbers in that time slot. They felt that if you put us in a prime time slot and traditionally Friday night is not a good night for ratings. It's not a good television night, right. not a lot of eyeballs watching TV. So to so put us on Friday, allow us to show you what we can do. We felt that we could bring eyeballs to the TV, um, with this attraction and we did and, and it did work, but it was a big deal. And the hope was that the network would see this and we would possibly get more primetime exposure, uh, for the product. Uh, so we're about three years into this Saturday night's main event relationship with NBC at this point for the world wrestling federation. What was Ebersol's involvement? I mean, as far as the card, the script, the production, the performers themselves, talk us through that. Dick was very hands-on and Dick was the one who introduced a lot of that heavy scripting into the WWF. Dick was the one who instituted a lot of the production values that you see today in WWE. So he was very hands-on and was always teaching and coming up with new and different ways to show us how to produce television. Uh, I learned, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I learned television wise from Dick Ebersol. 
where Vince McMahon is a genius in the wrestling business, Dick Ebersol to me was a genius in te- the television business. Absolutely pure genius. Um, he knew what the hell he was doing, knew how to get what he wanted, but he was opinionated. He would speak up. He and Vince would go back and forth. Uh, Dick had his staff of people that wrote scripts and uh, for Saturday Night's main event. Dick brought in his director and his producer, and there were a lot of you know a lot of people working hand in hand. But Dick had a heavy hand in uh, the Saturday Night main event productions. Besides Hogan, who were some of Ebersol's pet projects for these shows? God, he loved Randy, uh, Randy Savage and Elizabeth. Um, he. Enjoyed Honky Tonk Man. I'm glad you mentioned it, uh, Randy and Liz because I've got a follow-up to that. But who else did he enjoy besides them and Honky? Uh, anything with Bobby Heenan. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the normal guys that you think would be... Television stars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how did he spend most of his days on the shoots? Was he holed up with those guys? Was he in the production truck? Was he in the meeting? Was he near the ring? Well, Everywhere. He was all over everywhere. He was, he was, he was everywhere. And he and Vince were usually connected at the hip. They both produced pre-tapes together, um, with Vince working with the guys on the wrestling end and, and ever saw working with them on, on delivery and on the television and work this camera, work that camera. Um, Dick was everywhere. Now I want you to hear the question all the way before you shit on it, but I didn't really think about this until you talked about this being a possible opportunity for them to perform well and then get more spots in prime time. And then you followed that up a few minutes later by saying Vince and he were connected at the hip was Vince. Um, we always have this as wrestling fans, uh, this vision of Vince where he's high on the mountain and just barking orders to everyone and everyone is seeking his approval the way you laid those two sentences out, although they weren't together, it makes it feel as if Vince kind of had the roles reversed on him a little bit, and he desperately wanted to make Dick Ebersol happy here, and he was looking for his approval in the show in, in an effort to further the company for the greater good, not on some weak bit shit. I'm not saying that, but just, hey, this is good for everybody, and I'm going to do what it takes to make it happen, and I'm going to do what it takes to make Dick dig this. Is that fair? It was- No, it was a partnership. It was a true partnership. Vince looked to Dick for improving the production aspects of it and the network relationship aspect of it because Dick wasn't with NBC at the time. Dick had his own production company, and it was a true partnership with Vince and Dick. And Dick looked up to Vince so much for Vince's vision of what he saw for the product itself. Sure. And... It was it was a true partnership. I don't know that either one of them uh, took that dominant role, if you will. It was it was about as close to equal as you could get. Probably probably edging a little more towards the final say being with Vince, and especially and especially um, probably especially at this point, the it, it edged towards Vince. Um. Vince was pretty fond of Ebersol, right? Very much so, yes, and vice versa. So could we get maybe a T-shirt over at BrucePritchard.com that says Vince loved Dick? <laughs> no. Uh, I asked this uh, about the whole 
pet project aspect because Sean Oliver and kayfabe commentaries recently did an interview with the honky tonk man where he said that Dick and Randy and Liz were all over at Dick's house talking about their big plans for his intercontinental title win and run and how it would all happen on NBC. And then honky says that Vince got the three performers together to tell them what the plan was, but he never really spoke to honky much less even look at him until the very end where he said, Honky's going to drop the belt and he's going to go away for a while. Uh, apparently honky says in this interview that that pissed him off. And the next day he told blackjack lands to tell Vince, he wasn't going to do the fucking job. Five minutes later, Fink calls, tries to smooth things over, uh, on behalf of Vince, of course. And then by the time Vince actually calls him, honky says he's already talked to Jim Barnett for advice and to secure a spot down South. Since he thinks Vince is about to kill his character. Vince comes unglued. Uh, and then eventually honky reveals that Barnett had told him this NBC special is going to be the biggest thing in the business and whatever he does, don't lose on that show. So he says all of this to Vince, Vince blows a gasket and honky says something like, well, come to Memphis and beat me for it. Then, uh, eventually they agree that he won't quit, but honky does this as a concession for McMahon agreeing to not have him lose on TV. So honky's not going to lose on TV. And he didn't, uh, more details of this are available in our mega powers episode available now in the archives. Uh, but what say you, Bruce, is this how you remember going down? I don't know. I wasn't there for any of those meetings with honky tonk man and Vince or Howard calling him. I heard the same stories that you have heard. I know that Vince, uh, figured that what he wanted to do, especially at this point in the game was where he wanted to go with Randy in, in the championship. Um, so it was, you know, all that shit happening. It just kind of helped move everything along to make his plans either speed up or, or what have you. But I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't a part of any of those meetings with Honky Tonk Man and Vince, nor was I privy to really any of Vince's feelings on on that one way or the other i have no idea what might have taken place at eversol's house with randy and liz so hypothetically speaking if honky tonk man would have told macho man to come to memphis and beat him what might macho man have said in response fuck if i know okay well well in hindsight would the macho man say that going with honky tonk man here was the smarter choice uh huh. Uh yeah. Uh, the macho man became the world champion. Uh huh. Take a deep breath, there, Bruce. You have earned it, and you're going to earn a great deal at DollarShaveClub.com forward slash wrestle. I do think it was a smarter choice for them to keep the belt on Honky Tonk Man. Had they not done that, would we have seen the Warrior get his big pop and his big push? Would we have seen the mega powers explode? Uh, everything could have been a lot different and I'm really glad it worked out the way it did. Uh, I'm curious how hard did Ebersol have to champion quote unquote, the WWF to get the rest of NBC behind doing this show in prime time. This feels like something that some of those stuffy TV executives would have wanted to avoid completely. Right? Well, the success of Saturday night main event that helped. They were doing great ratings. They were doing better ratings than Saturday Night Live at the time. So they had a hot commodity. 
it was it was actually kind of an easy sell to at least get them to try it and experiment with it. And Friday was a good night. The fact that uh, WWF was willing to go on Friday, they, they were happy. It was kind of a, a no-brainer for NBC, in my opinion. So let me ask you this. Um, do you recall there being a narrative already in 1988 that we can't sell advertising for wrestling? Was that an issue already then? As fans, we always hear that wrestling does great ratings, but it doesn't command the high ad rates that maybe it should. Was that the rap already in 1988 for yes and no. That's funny. You know, because I, I say yes and no, because for the syndicated shows, those were fully sponsored and those ads were selling. And especially at that time they were doing well, but for a network, for example, the, the cable network and for NBC, yeah, they always use that excuse. I can't sell wrestling. People don't want to advertise on wrestling. Now, in fairness, though, when you're saying a syndicated show, you're usually talking about uh, a less desirable Saturday, Sunday morning spot as compared to primetime television on a network. Well, for certain companies, though, that Saturday morning and Sunday morning time slot is very desirable. Oh, no, no, I'm not knocking that. marketing to kids. No, I totally get that. But I'm just saying uh, you don't have that same marketing to kids Friday night at 11. Correct. Um, in your opinion, was Ebersol more concerned with the product and ratings or ad sales? It feels like he's more of a product and ratings guy. And then lets the sales take care of themselves. Well, we, we had nothing to do with the sales. Though. It was a right steal, as far as I can remember. And Eversol was more concerned with the, the product and the overall presentation. Uh, did you ever hear, just for comparison, how the Saturday Night Live ad rates compared to Saturday Night's main events ad rates? No clue. Uh, before we get to the actual storyline, I want to mention that the show wound up getting a 15.2 rating. Let me say that again because everybody has probably been paying attention to the raw rating lately. The show got a 15.2 rating. That's roughly 33 million viewers. Uh, you guys have to be tickled with that, right? What was the reaction when those numbers come in? Euphoria. <laughs> I'm sure. No, it was, it was great. It was a victory because we felt that give us an opportunity, put us in prime time and let us show you what we can do. And we took the, at that time, the biggest box office attraction that had ever been in the business and placed it on free television in prime time. If it hadn't have done that number, a lot of people would have been shaking their heads. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, um, what I don't understand about wrestling. And I know you're going to say, well, that's a lot. We don't have that long. I got it. But how do we interpret this setting a TV record here, but then not selling out the live arena? Like on the one hand, we started this by talking about all the empty seats and saying, well, maybe they just didn't want to see it. But then nationally, it's huge. 33 million folks. Talk me through this. Help me understand. Uh, how is that possible? There, there could be a million and one excuses in the world, but the new gas station opened up down the street that crazy when you think about it though i mean this makes no rhyme or reason for how nationally it's the biggest thing ever 33 million people but you can't get 15,000 people there locally that's crazy yes it is uh if this was such a huge success on tv and clearly it was 15.2 why didn't we get another one 
for a whole year. The next main event in prime time wouldn't be until February 3rd, 1989. Well, you got to listen to the networks and you've got to hear all these people give you all of the different reasons why you can do the same thing. That new gas station opened down the street. Um, an excuse is an excuse, but they would always give us the, the same old tired answer of, well, you know what? We've got our schedule set. We've already set our schedules. We've got our shows. We have our network primetime shows that are already set all the way into, you know, through next fall. We, we can't possibly fit you in. So that tells me that someone at the station was not a fan of wrestling or had some sort of alternate bullshit reason uh, an excuse, we might even say, as to how the show got a 15.2 rating. Because if this is a ratings bonanza, the, the network would be champion. Hell, how many of these can we get? I mean, the network wants to push these down your throat. If something is doing big business, they do more of it, not less of it. Well, you would hope so. But I think that the issue became from became from a network point of view. Well, who sells this? Does... The sports division do this? Does the entertainment division do they this? They didn't know what to do they with couldn't, it. They couldn't even decide amongst themselves. We're sitting there going, hey, we're entertainment, guys. Yeah. Don't don't put us in that sports fucking heat. Right. We're entertainment. We want to be on the entertainment side of things and allow us to entertain and allow us to do what we do best and, and put us out there. But there was there was just definitely a distaste for wrestling. You got to you got to understand how we even got into the game was in the late night genre on a Saturday night that nobody else wanted to touch. Right. And it was a slot that Ebersol had championed and made successful from day 1. So they gave because of Dick they gave us that opportunity for, you know, the Saturday night main event and made a go of it. You know, it's just funny to me that it all came down to really, they didn't know what to do with you. I mean, it's like a football bat. Nobody knows what to do with it. And the, the, the success and the momentum lags a little bit just because the sales team doesn't know how to get their shit together as to who, who gets it. Uh, as a reminder from 1987 in our episode there, the million dollar man wanted to buy the world wrestling federation championship from Hulk Hogan. Hogan, of course, the great good guy he is, he refuses. So now DiBiase gets creative and instead buys the contract for Andre the Giant from Bobby the Brain Heenan. So the new plan is for the million dollar man to have Andre the Giant beat Hulk Hogan for the title and then just give him the title live on NBC's main event. And the million dollar man and his bodyguard Virgil plan to accompany Andre to ringside for the match as well. Uh, Before we move on here, I'm curious, Bruce. Did Bobby Heenan care one way or another about no longer being paired with Andre? It was such a big part of Andre's career up to that point. I mean, at the high point, WrestleMania three, Bobby's right by his side. And now less than a year later, that's not really the case. Did Bobby care one way or another at this point? Well, Bobby knew that he was still going to be a part of that package and that this was just simply an angle and a part-time deal. So Bobby didn't care. Bobby cared about getting a check every week. Well, real title now. Uh, worth mentioning here that uh, Hulk Hogan's famous training montage is on this episode of the main event, uh, and it's set to Jake the Snake Roberts' theme song. It's just often awesome stuff, uh, and if you've never seen it, you should go out of your way to watch it. 
Uh, it's basically everything that's right with the eighties. It's on YouTube. If you want to look up Hulk Hogan, Jim circa 1987. All right. We're going to nerd out here for a minute, Bruce. Uh, another icon of the wrestling industry debuts here on this show. And it's the new world title. Before the match, Hogan is backstage doing a promo with Mean Gene, and he's wearing his world title that many fans refer to as the Hogan 86 or Hogan 87 because he had two very similar belts. Uh, you probably remember this belt I'm talking about best from his match with Andre at WrestleMania 3. Anyway, just moments after this backstage promo, Hogan busts through the curtain at Market Square Arena, and he's got on a different belt. And this is the one you probably remember more with Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels. It's the most iconic world title design in WWF history, at least in my worldview. It's called the winged Eagle amongst belt fans, and it's dual plated here with both nickel and gold and lots of extra attention to detail is paid. Uh, there was even a logo plate that said WWF champion before the snaps. And there were three guys who had custom logo plates designed Hulk Hogan, the ultimate warrior and macho man. Uh, I realize this is next level detail here, but I love this belt. Uh, Bruce, do you remember who would have tasked Reggie Parks with creating this new world title that debuted here on this show? At that time, that would have been Terry Garvin, who was dealing with Reggie and getting the belts. Did Vince pay much attention to belts or have strong opinions one way or another about any belt in particular that you can remember? Not that I can remember, no. Uh, did Reggie hand deliver it here in Indianapolis that day or the backstage promos done a different day? I asked because I've always been curious how Hogan has one belt on backstage for the promo, but then another on his way to a ring. So it either has to be different days. Uh, they, yeah. They were just done earlier in the day. So the belt got delivered later in the day. I have no idea. Okay. I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I realize it's a lot of questions about a belt, but uh, I get to ask the questions here. Damn it. Uh, did anybody catch this? Cause it seems like this lack of continuity would have been something in those days that Ebersol or McMahon would have paid a lot of attention to. It feels like a detail that maybe even would have pissed off. Vince. Oh, my, oh my God. It, it, there, there was so much attention to detail from Polaroids of when guys did their pre-tapes earlier in the day that they had someone at gorilla, basically quality checking, looking at their Polaroid and looking at the guys before they went out. If they had just done a promo and were going out to the ring. So how does the belt being totally different slip through? Obviously someone didn't notice. They just saw the gold belt and thought there it is. There it is. Yeah. Not that many people pay attention to that shit. Well, I guess I'm one of the weird ones. Uh, the start of the match has both Ted and Virgil involved physically with Hulk, uh, beating them both up. And then they're obviously doing this to try to mask Andre's physical limitations. Uh, is there any consideration at this point? to do a title match on pay-per-view with Andre dropping the title to Hogan. I know that this is a babyface territory. You've told us that on old episodes, but it feels like a babyface chasing a monster heel for the big win is a formula we've seen work before in every other territory. Yeah, but it didn't work in New York and they didn't like it in New York. So that really wasn't a consideration at that time. Vince didn't, was not a fan of having heel champions and wanted a hero babyface as the champion. So, Here's what we got in one of the most memorable and controversial finishes in WWF history. Andre pins Hogan to win the WWF title after about nine minutes, even though Hulk's shoulder was obviously up by the count of one and right in front of the referee and on camera. Andre's given the belt and announced as the new WWF champion. Immediately after that, Gene Okerlund comes to the ring and interviews Andre, and he says, This is no surprise. I told you I was going to win the World Tag Team Championship. 
And now I surrender the world tag team championship to Ted DiBiase. So the belt goes from Andre's shoulder to around DiBiase's waist and the million dollar man's plan has worked. He's bought his way into becoming the WWF world champion. After all, if you haven't already, again, go check out that million dollar man episode in our archives. We covered this and everything about that character in great detail. I think it's one of the best shows we've ever done. Uh, but for those of us who haven't listened, remind us again, why Andre would have referred to the world title as a tag team championship. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite Andre, the giant promo? <laughs> I know you're laughing. Can you remember a particularly good one that we could recommend to fans? I got and I strangle. Yeah, that's, that's about it. Brother love. Um, you know, I was terrified to work with Andre the first time. Andre liked Bruce, but he hated brother love. Oh, I love that. And for, and it wasn't that he didn't know that it was one, that I was one in the same. It's just that he really despised the brother love character so much so that we had had to have a sit down. It was all, it's almost childlike in a way where Vince kind of explained Andre. Well, Bruce is, is brother love, but it's still just Bruce boss. I don't like brother love. Uh, no, it wasn't that bad, but it was Andre didn't like brother love. Who did? Hey, million dollar man, my benefactor. So eventually Dave Hebner runs to the ring and starts arguing with another identical referee. Uh, of course we didn't know that at home. This is his brother, Earl. Um, the evil ref who counted Hulk down attacks the new ref and kicks him out of the ring, letting us at home know that he was the one who took the bribe from DiBiase to screw our champion out of the title. So the story is that DiBiase found someone to get plastic surgery, to look like a WWF referee, put them into an official referee uniform and paid them off to do this dirty count. Hulk realizes what's happened and military presses him and throws him out of the ring on the DiBiase and Virgil. If you go look at the tape, he threw him so hard. It looks like he completely misses everybody and just hits the floor. Uh, a few minutes later, we see Hogan backstage talking to mean Gene about the controversial loss. And Hogan is wondering how much the multi-million dollar man had to pay that ref to look exactly like the other ref. This was voted pro wrestling illustrated's match of the year for 1988, but it was really the angle of the eighties, at least to me. Bruce, we talk a lot about the bad stuff here on this show, but man, this was like the best shit ever. Was it not? Yeah, it was great. It was probably still to this day, one of the best finishes and overall presentations I've ever seen. Whose idea was this evil referee gimmick and how did it take until 1988 for it to actually happen? The Hebners had been ref since the seventies. So they'd been around a while. And this finish is one of those deals where you have twins and it makes so much sense. It's really simple, but as a kid, man, this stuff just blew my mind. Now though, even then, especially I have trouble telling Dave and Earl apart as a kid, man, I just had no idea. Well, okay. Let me explain something to you here. I was working the gorilla position for this show and 
having the time to show out, get the commercials and so on, and let everybody know where we are time-wise and needed to know everything to kind of run shit. I didn't know the finish. I had no clue. So you didn't know that there was a twin referee? No. I knew I knew that we were switching the title. Had you met that I knew. Had you met Dave and Earl Hebner before? I had obviously knew Dave. I'd never met Earl. Wow. I knew there was I knew there was a twin. I knew there was Earl, but he worked for Jim Crockett. So that night, Earl's the one who refereed the match. And I'm talking to Earl right before he goes out for the I, match. And you think thinking it's Dave. it's Dave. Wow. I had no clue. That's awesome. And Vince had asked me uh, that night. He pulled me off and said, uh, oh, you got, you got the finish for Hogan match? I said, uh, no. I mean, I know we're switching the title and all that, but they, he says, do you want to know? I said, no, I don't. Do I need to know? He just smiled and said, no. And I chose not to, not to know the, the finish of the match. I wanted to watch it. And it was just so friggin' good. That, that was one of those moments that was like, oh my God. How pleased was everyone when the angle was over? And by everyone, I mean, Hogan, Andre, DiBiase, Pat, the Hebner's Dick, Vance, everybody. It was perfect. I mean, it, it was executed to perfection. So everybody was ecstatic. I remember coming back when Vince came back and he was in his tux and we were standing there and he was drinking a beer and I walked up to him and he just started laughing, shook him, shook his hand, gave me a hug. And it was like, that was one of the best things I'd ever seen. So here's a random question. What type of beer does Vince drink? What, what, what kind of question is that? When he said he was drinking a beer, what type of beer is it? Miller Lite. Roll Tide. That's what I needed to hear. Hashtag it's Miller time. Uh, let's talk briefly about the Hebners, and I'm sure we will cover them again in the future, uh, long form, because we get lots of questions about their departure all the time, actually. Uh, but let's talk about their beginning first. Uh, they didn't come in together, so you said Dave came in first. They've been working since the 70s. After this angle is over, uh, did they work in front of the cameras as the same guy? Meaning, was this ever acknowledged again that there's twins? Like, how long did it take before the audience was smartened up that this is Dave and this is Earl? It took a while. And here was the funny thing, because Dave was making the transition to be a behind-the-scenes road agent. And Earl was going to be the one that was actually going to be the referee. So, for the longest time, Earl was the referee, but we referred to him and identified him as Dave Hebner, which I always just thought was kind of funny. But then eventually, you know, you started seeing Dave in backstage segments and they identified him as Dave and then changed Earl to Earl. Uh, any fun stories about working with Earl or Dave? We've heard a lot about them over the years, but we don't necessarily know. Uh, a lot of the funny haha, and it feels like those guys would have been the life of the party at different times or down for a good rib here, or there. Just two great guys. You know who, uh, Earl and Dave reminded me of was heckle and Jekyll, you know, the cartoon, the, the magpies or whatever the hell they are. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. What is a, what is a heckle and Jekyll? 
Heckle and Jekyll were these two magpies. They were they were twins. One was Heckle, one was Jekyll, and they used to just cause havoc. It was a cartoon in the seventies, and for whatever reason, I just always would see Heckle and Jekyll whenever I would see Earl and Dave together. But man, I, the Hebners were a blast on the road. If you ever needed anything done, they could get it done. If you were ever looking for an ice cold beer, you find a Hebner, you're going to find an ice cold beer. And they had every in and out. They knew exactly where to stay, where the deals were, and where the fun was. Well, that's good to know. Uh, the day after the main event, the company did double shots in Boston and Philadelphia. You just talked about that a minute ago. Uh, both times, Hogan would tag with Bigelow against DiBiase and Virgil. And on both shows, DiBiase wore the belt to the ring and was introduced as the WWF champion. It's also worth mentioning that the shows drew nearly 29,000 folks between them. Uh, were you at these shows? And if so, what was the heat like for DiBiase? I was not. I was on a, I was on that plane out of Indianapolis on Friday night after the show. And everybody else kind of got stuck in Indy with bad weather. Uh, Hogan worked a six-man with Savage and Steamboat against Honky and the Hart Foundation in Quebec two days later. Uh, talk everyone through why Hogan was booked with middle of the card baby faces in these tag matches so often. What middle of the card baby faces? Well, I'm just saying at the time steamboat was not positioned really high on the card. He was a year prior, but he's kind of on his way out here. And we would see this period kind of continue where he's with Bigelow. He's with Duggan. Um, he's with Hercules. He would tag with guys who were kind of in that spot. He's not always tagging with, you know, Randy Savage every week. No, it was Savage and Steamboat. So I, I think that both of those guys are both top main event guys that. Then never mind. Uh, fuck I, my question. Don't worry about it. Let's get question. caught up God on semantics. Uh, we've all heard that Hogan had his favorites, whether it was opponents or partners. Uh, do you recall Hogan ever specifically pushing back on anyone in particular? Was there one guy that he's like, can't do it, brother. He didn't want to work with Dustin Rhodes way back when, uh, in 92. Like yeah. Yeah. He, when we want to bring Dustin in and, and do something with Dustin, just fresh is, is an opponent for Hogan. He, he didn't feel that that was somebody that he really wanted to work with. It wasn't anything against Dustin. He just felt that he wasn't big he, enough and I, had the stature enough to work with Hogan. Bullshit. He didn't want to work with a young, uh, blonde haired, as tall as he is, babyface, with a wrestling legacy. No. Okay. He looked at it. He looked at. He looked at him. Dustin wasn't in the best of shape at the time, and he just felt that how am I going to sell he, you know, his quote his quote buggy whip arms uh, against me? And just didn't feel that it was. And Dustin didn't look like you know a great athlete at the time. That's why we covered him up with the gold dust stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's better that he worked against one man gang. You're right. Exactly. Big uh, nasty bastard. Yeah. I mean, how, why would he want to work with a little guy like him or macho man or DiBiase? Uh, on February 13th, we had Hogan tagging with Bigelow again, but this time we had mad dog Bashan in the corner against Andre and DiBiase. Who was mad dog close with in the office? If anyone, we saw him pop up here and there. Uh, even as late as 96, how does that booking come to be? It feels like a one-off. Well, we're probably in Des Moines here, right? 
had to be somewhere in there because that's where Maurice lived at the time. And he was good friends with Pat Patterson, but also Vince. He was a mad dog Vachon, for God's sakes, man. He was a just good God. Vicious and the stories Mad Dog could tell. And he was a small guy, but he was one of the toughest human beings that I've ever met in my entire life. A legitimate, badass, amateur wrestler, fighter. Just all around tough guy. Never backed down from a fight in his life. Uh, the next day, they're back in Pontiac, Michigan, at the Silver Dome, the site of WrestleMania three. So, of course, they come back with Hogan and Bigelow on one side, DiBiase and Andre on the other side. This tag team variation of Hogan Andre only draws twelve thousand folks to the Silver Dome, and obviously twelve thousand's a big crowd. But the number has to be disappointing in a building this size, considering what happened a year prior. What's to blame for this drop in a year, do you think? It ain't WrestleMania. And I think you just, and also you just gave away the match that drew the house, which was the one-on-one Hogan and Andre. You just gave it away for free right. on network television. So it's. So the question I have is. Why book this giant building if you know all of that going in? Or it's was probably cheap. Okay, there you go. Uh, they took that same match to Chicago the next night and then had back-to-back nights of TV tapings where Hogan didn't perform. The idea being, in order to see Hogan wrestle, you need to buy a ticket, right, Bruce? you damn right. On February 18th in the Meadowlands, Hogan would beat the Intercontinental Champion, the Honky Tonk Man, by DQ. And then he took a week off to come back on February 26th. There he would work Hollywood, Florida, right before intermission against the natural Butch Reed. A lot of fans may not get the connection, but why was Butch Reed working Hogan on this particular show in Florida? Because it's close to Hogan's home. Well, because Butch Reed's over in Florida. Well, that too. Golly. I'll just do this by myself for the rest of the show if that's okay with you. Okay. I mean, good Lord, Florida championship wrestling, Butch Reed from Florida. He was drawing houses down there and doing great. having great matches. Yeah, that was a long time ago. That was a long ass time ago. We're talking about a show that happened 29 years ago. I understand that, but Butch had left Florida like long before that and gone through mid South and then been in. uh... Okay. Then answer this smarty. Why is Butch Reed working against Hulk Hogan in Florida? Because they wanted to see how Butch would do. If people were buying him, why didn't they do it in Detroit? Well, because Butch was over in Florida. <laughs> why aren't you? Why aren't you paying attention, man? Oh, I love you so much. Sometimes <laughs> I want to strangle you. I feel my blood pressure getting higher over here. I'm about to get a about to pull a Kenny Bowling on you. Um, after being in Hollywood, Florida, Bruce, do you want to guess where they were the very next day? Denver, Colorado. You fucker. Quit doing research what? on your end. Yes, that's right. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. This is a look at a map from Denver. I mean, Florida to Denver. Listen, Ed Cohen wasn't the most popular guy <laughs> amongst the boys. I mean, this is crazy to me. So he goes from working Butch Reed in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, then he goes to Denver, Colorado for another sold out show with Hogan Bigelow against Andre DiBiase. Two days later, Virgil has Andre's spot in the tag match in Boise, Idaho. 
So they go Florida, Denver, Idaho. So your my next question was going to be who booked this shit, but it's Ed Cohen. Yeah, and then from there they probably went to Bangor, Maine. <laughs> no, that, and then back and then back to Las Vegas, and then let's go to Chicago. If you walked into Ed Cohen's office back in the day, there was a gigantic map of the United States across from his desk, and there were darts all over the the map. And because everybody joked that Ed just had a map of the United States and would throw darts at it and go, here's where we're going next. So he actually really and truly did in real life have a giant map of the United States with darts in just, it. Just so to piss people would off. Come by. Yeah, when the boys would come by, Ed, why the fuck are we going here? He goes, well, I threw the dart. A week later, they're at the Cow Palace in San Fran, again, with Hogan working a tag, but this time it's with Jim Duggan against DiBiase and Virgil, and they did it again the very next night in L.A. too. Uh, We've talked a lot about local promoters on this show in older episodes. These shows on the West Coast were doing really well for you here in 88. Do you remember off the top of your head who the local promoters may have been for San Fran and L.A.? Got it. You know, it changed over the years. I know later on, Bob Cartago worked as uh, one of the promoters in Northern California, so in the San Fran area. And Bob listens to the show actually still today. Um, I forget who we used because L.A. was a market that that we pretty much owned, and I don't really remember if that was somebody that was local or if that was someone from the office that actually would go into LA and run it for him on March 7th, Hogan would work the Saturday night. Hogan would work the Saturday night's main event taping in Nashville. They sold out quote unquote, 10,000 tickets, but it was reported. It was heavily papered. Why don't you think Nashville was a hotter WWF market during this time? It feels like, you know, during this run, Tennessee was not a huge draw for them. And, and I know that we all know, you know, Vince took over all the territories, but do you remember there being a specific territory that was more difficult to crack than the others? Maybe mid Atlantic or Tennessee, those areas seem to kind of struggle, but Texas, Minnesota, California, Florida, those did all very well, very quickly. Do I have that right? No. Okay. The hardest, the hardest ones, the hardest ones for him to crack probably in this order would have been. Houston. I knew you were going to say that because you're a dickhead. No, but it was. It was Houston. It was Mid-South, all the Watts's, New Orleans, Tulsa, Oklahoma City. Because um, we threw the book against him. I mean, we threw the book at him. We, we battled him. Uh, and then from there, I would probably say uh, Memphis in Jerry Lawler territory. But more Memphis in probably Nashville would would. Same carry thing. over to that yeah. as well. Yeah. Those deep South territories. Hogan is working against King Harley race on this Saturday night's main event here. And they only go about six and a half minutes, but man, is it memorable? You can see this match on Hulk Hogan's anthology DVD set or the best of Saturday night's main event DVD set. It's one of the first table spots in front of a live audience in WWF history. Harley put Hulk on the table and then attempted his diving headbutt from the apron, but Hulk moved, and that caused Harley to just crash through the table. This would be a legit injury to Harley and end his career. Do you remember this night and the injury? You know, it's funny, and I do remember it because it was my birthday, and I remember um, 
It was hardly spot. It was dangerous. And you, you say that now with the kind of shit that everybody does, but this was just not table. something that we did then. Yeah. So I, I do remember, and it was like, oh shit, you know, hated that he got hurt too. Um. Does Vince take care of him? Yes. It's notable that Saturday night's main event is where we close the show to this awesome Hulk Hogan, real American music video that everyone has seen a million times. Do you remember how that deal came together for you guys to use this song and where and when did you shoot uh, Hogan for this famous video? We've all seen so many times. I wasn't there for the famous video that we've all seen a thousand times. That was before my time. When it comes crashing down and it hurts inside. Dun, 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 that one? That's what I was looking for. I'm a real American. Fight for the rights of every man. I'm a real American. I don't do nothing with... Um, okay, anyway. Mexicans. Mex. Hey, <laughs> hey, Dave Silverman, I'm looking out for you, Vato, man. You can't go there. Only I can do that. Well, what's your favorite Hulk Hogan luchador match? Go. Yeah, that one. Con mil mascaras. No, yab, amigo. I didn't see them work. Where did that happen? Rio de Janeiro? Si, Guadalajara. Tijuana. Uh, they did TV tapings Sosekis. the next, the next two enchiladas, the next two days in Bristol, Tennessee and Winston Salem, North Carolina, uh, Hogan did a promo about WrestleMania four on one. And then on the other did a tag match with Bigelow again against Andre and DiBiase. Uh, they first started announcing this tournament concept on February 27th, 1988. When did you go? When did you know that this WrestleMania four card was going to be a tournament concept? I knew probably in December the year before. Wow. Uh, we'll talk about that. I'm sure on WrestleMania four episode, the WWF ran four shows on March 12th and Hogan was on two of them painting Virgil on a matinee show at the Capitol center in Landover. And then later defeating DiBiase in a lumberjack match at the spectrum in Philadelphia, the lumberjack match actually made the Hulkamania four videotape. And it has a fun bit where two masked men were trying to help DiBiase. Hogan takes their masks off and one has a second mask on. Eventually we see it's the killer bees. Uh, Bruce, I don't know when we'll talk about them again. You got any good killer bees stories? That's none of your beesness. See how I did that there? Yeah, it was not good actually. Bee, bee. No? No. Bzzz. Remember their promos? No, I try to block buzz, them out. When they, would, when they would buzz during their promos and go bzzz. You got any uh, Jim Brunzel or B. Brian Blair stories for us? No, not really, man. Brunzel was a lot of fun to drink with. He was a Minnesota boy that could drink a lot of beer, and he was a, just a good old Minnesota boy, man. And Brian was Brian. Well, there's your killer oh beast. Oh, my God. There's your, yeah, I'm sorry. And there's that. <laughs> Uh, Hamilton the next night was another tag with 15,000 fans there just two months after the Royal Rumble, and they're back in the same building again, drawing another huge crowd. Uh, the show the next night is in Quebec 
And it's a tribute show for Mad Dog Vashon, who had recently lost his leg in a car accident. Uh, they draw 18,000 fans here with Hogan on top, tagging with Bigelow against Andre and DiBiase again. Bruce, in a situation like this on a tribute show, how does the money work? Vince probably gave it all to Mad Dog, man. What a, that was just such a tragic accident. He's mowing the grass on his property on the side of the road, and a truck comes by and hits him, and he loses his leg. Wow. And that tough son of a bitch, you know, laid on the side of the road until help came, and they had to amputate his leg, and he'd never missed a beat. Uh, just had a great positive attitude. But on something like this for Mad Dog, it's something that everybody would be happy to contribute and, and take care of him for. These tag matches continue through Houston, Missouri, and Illinois on our way to WrestleMania four. And by now you realize the partners are Duggan or Bigelow with Hogan and a combination of DiBiase, Virgil and Andre on the other side. Along the way, you guys do press conferences for WrestleMania at Trump Plaza. And this is the first of two back-to-back WrestleManias there. Uh, the company has never done that before or since. Uh, why did back-to-back WrestleManias here make sense? Why haven't they done it before or since? Well, it was only four and five, so we didn't have a long history of them to really compare before. The reason to do it at this point, because it was simply a great deal. It was close to home, and we had a, a terrific deal with the hotel, with Trump Plaza, and the convention center itself. It looked good for television. We could decorate it and make it look good. And it was close to home. So we knew that we would draw. We knew we could draw there. And we knew that we could make money there, which was the most important thing. You could command a high dollar for the seats because the casino would buy them up, right. which they did, which was part of the deal. And you also knew that you, you had a great deal on the building and you had all those hotel rooms. And a lot of those expenses were absorbed due to the deal with Trump. So you work a deal out where you say, you're going to buy a bunch of the tickets and give them to your whales. You're going to give us a reduced rate on the venue because you're going to get people to come gamble here. And then you're going to comp all the boys, their rooms, or give us a really, really racehorse good deal to reduce our overhead. Ding, ding, ding. Makes total sense to me. I I didn't get it for so long, but now I'm like, well, hell, why not? I would do it every year. Uh, why was that was was part of the, the whole attraction of Vegas and Caesar's palace as well. Uh, how was Donald as an event partner here? The best. You you really and truly could not ask for a better event partner. He was a publicity whore. So anything that you ever wanted him to do, he would do. Because if it was publicity for him and publicity for his properties and getting getting himself out in the public eye. He's in. And then rubbing, oh, yeah, he's, he's definitely in. But he was great. I mean, he made his people available. Uh, he loved Vince's promotional style. He really looked up to Vince and learned an awful lot from Vince and vice versa. They, they clicked, they clicked right away. Trump loved the spectacle. Do you hear yourself on this episode? What? Dick Eppersall, who ran NBC and revolutionized television, looked up to Vince McMahon and Donald Trump, the president of the United States. He just looked up to Vince McMahon. We all did. did. We used to lay at the altar of McMahon and worship. Yes. Unbelievable. Now, talk me through a WrestleMania you press tour. You wish you could lay at that altar. 
I did get to shake his hand once. It was pretty cool. Uh, wash your hand after that. I'm sure he washed his immediately. <laughs> he, probably he, did, he probably did the, the sand hand sanitizer. Oh, I'm sure Jimmy Kelly handed him the Purell and he's like, was that guy from Alabama? Ugh. Oh God. Do you hear his accent? Oh, and he's fat. Ugh. God. Uh, Disgusting. <laughs> he had a beard. Ugh. Uh, give me an idea of what this WrestleMania press tour might be like, how the process is planned, who's invited, who's not, who puts it all together. Promotions department. That was yeah, Bob uh, Collins and Basil DeVito, especially through this. Basil was heavily involved in the promotion for WrestleMania during this time, as was Bob. But they did uh, quite a bit in the New York area, obviously in Atlantic, but a lot of it in Atlantic City. But a lot of it centered around Manhattan and New York City because that's where we were drawing from. And that was the heartbeat of the, uh, WWF at the time. Uh, I love talking about Jim Crockett and the Vince McMahon wars at this time. Uh, Bruce, do you remember what venue the WWF booked for their closed circuit building in Atlanta? No clue. The Omni. Well, yeah, why not? It's just awesome to me. Uh, I'm not sure when, but I do know for sure we're going to do that WrestleMania four episode at some point, but one of my favorite things from this show, uh, was the Bob Euchre, Andre, the giant choking bit. How great was Bob Euchre? Bob was cool as shit. He's another one that got it and was easy to work with. He was a friend of Ebersol's, so he would always kind of do the favor and they, they loved being around him, but he was just kind of easy to work with. As everyone probably remembers, Jack Tunney gave both Andre and Hogan a first round buy in the tournament since they were already in the championship match that caused all this chaos. So they face off in the second round and that match ends in a DQ when Hogan uses a chair In an effort to send the fans home happy with the WrestleMania moment, I guess Hogan slams Andre after the match. Uh, that's the big high spot. Everybody remembered from WrestleMania three, of course. Anyway, um, Bruce, the thinking here is to just get these guys out of the tournament and make room for Randy, right? Well, the whole idea behind the WrestleMania four promotion was essentially Hulk Andre three. Um, the, the way back original idea when I was first even brought into the storyline going forward was you had Hulk Andre WrestleMania three. Hogan wins. You go to Survivor Series with the next time that Hulk and Andre would be in the ring together. Andre wins. Of course, it was he didn't beat Hulk, but he won Soul Survivor. And then you go to the main event where Andre beats Hogan, albeit controversial, that essentially this was Hogan's time to come whole and beat Andre again, one-on-one. Um, but they did, you know, the, the whole schmoz because you couldn't have Hogan advance and you wanted to get them both eliminated. So Hulk could go away and make his movie. Um, so that obviously changed where it's like, well, Hogan can't win. Because then, how do you get him out of the tournament? So the idea is you eliminate them both, and then we'll get get to another one. Um, so it was just kind of a hodgepodge deal. It, it, it just became, 
that was the attraction. And again, when I say all these ideas, it's, it's what you're telling the audience, what you're going to see. You, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, at WrestleMania 4, that's where, where Hulk gets his win and becomes whole. And then from uh, the realistic storytelling, what you have to do for the finish is, is you got to get rid of them both. What you're promoting it is that that next one-on-one rematch. Which is so even reality, three one-on-one rematches, three one-on-one matches. Which is what the the poster was. It was the lightning behind Hogan and Andre nose to nose. Right. Uh, Hogan would come out uh, for the live crowd during the main event to help his friend Randy Savage become the WWF champion when he beat the Million Dollar Man using an elbow drop off the top. Afterwards, we get this iconic image of Miss Elizabeth on Randy's shoulder with the title belt across his other shoulder, and we see a subtle tease of something we wouldn't notice for a full year. Find out what on our Mega Powers episodes in the archives. Uh, real quick, I want to ask, did you already have WrestleMania 5 lined up before WrestleMania 4 was out of the ring? I have a pretty good idea. Uh, did Hogan have any problem not being in his usual main event spot here at WrestleMania? This is the first time in the history of WrestleMania he wasn't there. No, not not that I ever knew, no. I mean, he he was in the spot. He came out and sprinkled, you know, Hulk dust on Randy. So oh. he, he still was a part of that spot. We you have, know what I mean? We have got to get a T-shirt of like a hand with some white wrist tape sprinkling red and yellow dust on Macho Man. I, I mean, that needs to happen over at BruceBritchard.com. Uh, the next TV taping, Hulk Dust, I love that, was April 21st, uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And this is where we see Hulk Hogan pin Boris Zukov in under two minutes. Uh, Nikolai Volkov, one of my favorites, WWE legend, uh, would come in after the match and get a power slam and a leg drop for doing so. And then slick was treated to an atomic drop. And this is the last time we see Hogan for months. Tell everyone why no holds barred. It's no holds barred. What type of Christmas could, or should you have? Why have a Merry Christmas when you can have a no holds barred Christmas. No holds barred. The match, the movie, only on pay-per-view. No holds barred, also available in the archives. What's your favorite line from that movie, Bruce? No holds barred. What's that smell? Dookie. I want to hear some. Let's hear some Nikolai Volkov stories. Uh, Am I wrong in thinking this guy's like one of the more uh, underrated guys in the history of the company. Well, you know, as far as Nikolai Volkov, yes, he is. And he, he's, he's the real deal. Uh, another one who was a legit badass, strong as an ox. You asked that question earlier about, were there any guys that, that didn't do anything or made it? Nikolai Volkov is another name you can add to that list. Um, Nikolai traveled with a hot plate. And Nikolai was notorious for being very frugal. Kids out there, for those of you that are not familiar with the word frugal, Nikolai was cheap. Um, Nikolai still has the first penny he ever earned. He's earned a very nice living. Great, great guy. But Nikolai would would carry uh, around a hot plate and his own pots and pans and, and all this other stuff. And when he would get into town, he would go to the grocery stores. And he would ask them for, where is your fruit that you're going to throw out? 
or where's the fruit that is set to be, you know, thrown away? And he would go back and pick through it and take the fruit that's, you know, overripe or the vegetables that they are bruised that they're not going to sell and take all that and then get, you know, whatever uh, steak was on sale or chicken and then stink up whatever hotel he was staying in with the garlic and making his, uh, making his food in the hotel room. Didn't spend a lot of money on the road. But he made a lot of money and he made a lot of it from 84 to 87 teaming with the Iron Sheik. And in my mind, that Iron Sheik, Nikolai Volkov tag team is one of my very favorites just because there's nothing more wrestling than the Iron Sheik with a big nasty Russian. Am I right? Oh, hell yeah. And to quote Ernie Ladd, you gotta look at them. They're real. The Volkov and the Sheik, they're real. I remember looking at him going, but Nikolai's not really Russian. He's Yugoslavian or whatever the hell he is. I think he's from He's Carolina. real, damn it, and the Sheik is real Iranian. They're real. They're foreigners. Um, is one of the better gimmicks of all time him interrupting and singing the Russian national anthem? Gotta love it. It's classic. Do you remember any of the words? Eat my crotch. Are you saying eat my crotch at the end? No, that was Russian National. Well, I got to tell you, uh, that is maybe one of the highlights of the show to me. You seeing the Russian national anthem ending it with eat my crotch. Uh, it's not something I was ready for. Say that. Hey, you said, eat my crotch. <laughs> just, that's just what you heard. That's not what I said. Oh gosh. Wonder what he's up to these days. Hogan's first child, Brooke, was born on May fifth, nineteen eighty-eight. What type of gift does Vince McMahon get for the man who has everything, Hulk Hogan, for something like this? Unengraved dumbbell. Is that real? Yeah. So uh, this engraved dumbbell is it like a baby weight for the baby, or is it forty like a little baby dumbbell? Sterling silver or gold. I forget which one. Uh, if Vince were calling to congratulate Hulk on the birth of his firstborn, what might that sound like? God damn, pal. Congratulations. I told you you had swimmers. (laughs) (sighs) It's the best podcast ever. On July 13th, there's a TV taping in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and the Macho Man announces he's finally found a tag partner for SummerSlam to take on that big, nasty Andre the Giant and the Million Dollar Man, and his partner will be Hulk Hogan. This is Hogan's first appearance in nearly three months, and he makes it clear during his promo that Miss Elizabeth is with him now, too. On that same taping, Hogan and Elizabeth accompany the Macho Man to the ring when he takes on Conquistador number one, who's seconded by a conquistador at number two. The match goes about two minutes. Macho Man, of course, wins with an elbow drop off the top. Bruce, how old school is this conquistador gimmick? And 
Who did you guys get to do these? Jose Luis Rivera Jr. E. Jose Estrada. Can you remember any fun conquistador spots you guys would do on house shows with this gimmick? We would do the conquistador swish. Besides that, besides Bella, Bella twin, twin magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that was about it. That was about it. Cause, cause Jose was about a foot shorter than Jose. Well, you know, the, the one that was taller, that was Jose. And then the shorter one, Jose, well, you know, they were, Jose was bigger than Jose. So, well, you know. When you're trying to get over a new baby face like this, you need Hogan to be out of the picture. So the new guy doesn't feel like a backup quarterback to the fans. And when Hogan is back, you need Hogan's endorsement for the new guy, right? Exactly. So the next day you guys do a TV taping in Cedar Rapids. Here we'll see Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, and Miss Elizabeth join you on the Brother Love Show. Hogan says he would love to get his hands on Brother Love and chases you off the set. Hogan continues his list of things he loved, including putting his fist in the cash register of the multi-million dollar man, which sounds kind of kinky when you think about it. Uh, it's one of the first times you hear this pairing of Savage and Hogan referred to as the Mega Powers. And they finish the segment by promoting SummerSlam and then putting Elizabeth on Randy's shoulders. And that segment, if you'd like to see it, is available on YouTube right now. Uh, just look for WWF Brother Love Show, Randy Savage, comma, Hulk Hogan, 80788. Uh, Bruce, how easy were Savage and Hogan to work with on this Brother Love segment? It feels like these are two old pros and there's not a lot of scripting that would be needed compared to today. It's like a night off because you could lay out exactly what you needed, uh, have an idea where you're going to go and just go and have fun because we all knew each other well enough that I knew how to get them where they wanted to go and vice versa. They knew how to play off of each other and we all knew how to play off of the other, not play with the other, but you know, you know, uh, why did Hogan always call? DiBiase, the multi-million dollar man. Is him that was more evil than just the million dollar man? Uh, where was DiBiase's cash register? I'm just trying to figure out exactly where Hogan wanted to put his fist. Well, you know, uh, I can't disclose that kind of information now. Talk me through, um, the way Hogan would have taken direction at the time. You just said it was kind of like a night off. You let them know what you want to get done at this point. Are you Bruce Pritchard able to go to Terry Bollea and say, Hey, so here's what we need tonight and him just yep. do it. Or is he hitting you with some, that doesn't work for me, brother. I've n- never, well, that's not true. <laughs> um, I've been hit with, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Um, but for the most part, no, I would go to him and say, here's, here's what we're looking for. And how do you want to get there? Okay. So you leave it open-ended where, where Hulk could kind of dictate the way he wanted to do it. And I'm not saying that 
you know, he was better than or above that, but he was certainly in a position where he was a big enough contributor that his opinion mattered to pretty much for, for guys that I had confidence in that I knew they knew what to do. I'd left it open for everybody to get their own shit in regardless of their spot on the card. It, there was input and feedback from the talent. Yes, man. That's not the way it happens now. Now, right now, writer's assistants bring over an MS word document. That's been printed out and highlighted in gray because the WWE will not print in color. And they say, here's the revisions from 30 minutes ago. And here's what you're going to do. Yeah, that's crazy. No, uh, we didn't do it that way. At the end of the month, Hogan main events, an outdoor event in Milwaukee at County stadium. They draw over 25,000 folks to WrestleFest 88. In the main event, Hulk Hogan took on Andre the Giant inside of a steel cage and got the win, escaping only about 10 minutes into the match. This would become a VHS release through Coliseum Home Video and has since been released on multiple DVDs. Uh, Bruce, running a stadium show here seems a bit out of the norm for the company. Do you remember how this came to be? The opportunity came to us for a promotion with the Milwaukee Brewers. And they wanted us to run the stadium. Say, hey, would you guys be interested in doing a, a live event in the stadium? They'd had success with uh, Toronto and I believe Montreal, but a few different stadium shows. So took it up. It was an opportunity to run the stadium. Great deal. Co-promotion with the Brewers. And why not? Uh, the next two days, uh, Hogan worked TV tapings against bad news, Brown and Haku. Uh, these happened in Ohio and West Virginia, both winning with a leg drop seven or eight minutes into the match. And of course they're taping promos for SummerSlam at both shows. You talked earlier about there being a hard and fast rule about when you're booking towns, try to be three hours away, no more than three hours away. So you can at least drive there. And you've told us before there was some sort of method to the number of vignettes you would air before a new character debuted. Did that same methodology apply to a pay-per-view main event as far as promotion? Was there a certain number of promos or interviews you guys tried to strive for for a pay-per-view main event? Well, you tried to get all your promotions, especially at the time, to be at least eight weeks in advance to get tickets on sale and to be able to promote the event properly but it, it would depend on the match and the attraction. But for the most part, you try to be eight weeks out front. Uh, after yeah. 25,000 folks showed up in Milwaukee, eight days prior, Hogan, Andre work on top and they draw in Greensboro, North Carolina. Do you want to guess how many folks? Six million people. How about 3,600? This was amazing to me that eight days after they draw 25,000 folks in Milwaukee, eight days later, Hogan, Andre Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the capitals of wrestling in North America, 3,600 folks. When the house for that main event, Hogan, Andre is 3,600. Who is to blame? Whoever booked Greensboro. Thank you. That's the home of Starcade. I have no idea what you guys were doing there. Get your ass out of there and go to your own backyard. As we talked about at the beginning of the show, as you said, there is no backyard. It's all the United States. You can run wherever you want. I'm right. When I speak, when I think of wrestling capitals of the world, I'm sorry, but. 
Well, and it wasn't there for you. You drew 3,600. Milwaukee was your capital. God damn right. Uh, the day before SummerSlam, Hogan would headline Toronto in front of 18,000 fans against Bad News Brown. Uh, I've always been curious in, as far as like a non-pay-per-view show. So this is the day before SummerSlam. But they're in Toronto, major market. They draw 18,000 fans. Bad News is on top, but we know who draws the house. It's Hulk Hogan. Ballpark a payoff for Bad News Brown on a show like that. I'm not asking what he got paid. I'm saying, hypothetically, you're not normally in the main event, but you're in a major market and it sells out and does huge business. And you're working with Hogan. Uh, I know your check has a comma in it, but what's the first digit before the comma? He did well. More than 10,000. He did well. 5,000. He did well. Well, you just stop ballpark. Less, less than six figures and more than. <laughs> three yeah yeah more than three less than six i don't know what the hell he did he did they did what he probably did well on that i know what i i probably would have done off of that if what would you have done hypothetically what would you have done if brother love main event of the show i'd have been whole, five figures so you'd have been a 10 grand oh no wait four figures all right depends on where i was on the card you're main eventing against Hulk Hogan in Toronto in front of 18,000 fans the day before the very first SummerSlam. You're getting $1,000? No, I'd got more than that. 10 grand. I'm not going to discuss numbers. You can, you can name every number in between. I won't say yes or no. Well, you won't even know what's four and what's five. I mean, goodness You're gracious. Right. Okay. I didn't think you were going to tell me, so I have a backup bad news question. Uh, there's a pretty famous story out there that bad news has put out that maybe once upon a time when the WWF was doing an overseas tour, all the guys are traveling by bus. We all know that they're all on these big buses together. Uh, and on this bus, allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, Andre used some language that offended bad news to the point that he felt like he needed to stand up to Andre and challenge him to a fight. Andre refuses to do that. And eventually they patch everything up and this wasn't ever an issue again. Do you remember ever hearing a story like this, Bruce, what's the rumor and what's the innuendo about bad news and Andre having some sort of spat about Andre's language on a bus? Well, I remember the story apparently happened in Japan at some point when both of them were over there. Um, so I've heard the story. I believe it was with new Japan at the time. And that's pretty much what I've heard. I've heard the same thing, but I wasn't on the bus. I have no idea, but I could see it happening. Um, is it also true that Andre took a jump, took a dump on bad news chess? Andre. Okay. Let's see how he was on bad news chess. He had diarrhea. Yeah. And he was, he wanted to fart. And when he farted, whoa, whoa, whoa. who wants to fart when they have diarrhea? Well, okay. Here's the thing. He wanted to fart while he was sitting on bad news chest to be funny is to be funny. Yes. And when he farted, he shit sharted, he sharted. Yes. And he had diarrhea running all over and he was laughing so loud that he couldn't, he was laughing so hard that he like couldn't get up and it was running all down his legs and all over bad news and all over bad news chest more, and face. Yes, and the more bad news is trying to fight to, to get him off, and the more Andre's trying to get off, and the harder he's laughing, he can't. 
yeah, that's that was diarrhea. Uh, uh. Well, you know, the, you know, when you're very, very heavy and you're wrestling, bad news, brown diarrhea. Uh, uh. Diarrhea. Uh, uh. When oh, you're yeah. in Mexico, when you really gotta go, diarrhea. Uh, uh. Diarrhea. Uh, uh. See, everybody like thinks getting into the singing thing. We thinks we plan. Everybody thinks we plan this. This is all just freestyle. Uh, but I, I kind of expected you to say, no, that's just wrestling folklore. He didn't actually shit on bad news Brown, but he did. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. later maybe called Andre him Putin. the N word too. Andre Pooted. So let's run through all the Andre Dudu stories we've told on this podcast. In case you're not familiar, we've got hashtag Andre Blumpkin which was a famous Bobby Heenan story uh, that you have not yet told. Then we've got Andre having to, when he's in Japan, he can't really fit in where they have the toilet compartment. So he takes a tub plop or he, uh, takes a dump on the bed and wraps it up with newspaper and sheets and throws it in the hall. Or when he's in a pinch, he just shits on bad news. Brown. I got I must poo-poo. Hypothetically, if you could be Jake the Snake Roberts and have Andre stand on your hair, or Bad News Brown and have Andre take a shit on your chest, what would you pick? Well, neither one of them are very enviable, but yeah, I'd go with the hair. Uh, okay, I'm sure we're going to cover the first SummerSlam someday as it's its very own show. And we're just going to hit the high points here, at least for Hogan's involvement. I do want to mention that it was a sellout inside of Madison Square Garden. It's August 29th, 1988, of course. And this would become the second biggest event for the company every year, even today. The main event, obviously, Mega Powers, Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, with Miss Elizabeth. And they're going to be taking on the Mega Bucks. Andre the Giant and the Million Dollar Man with Bobby Heenan and Virgil in their corner. The special guest referee is Jesse the Body Ventura. And Ventura is one of the bigger names in the business at this time, based on the amount of TV time he gets as a commentator. But what was the thinking in putting him in the main event here? To create some doubt as to would they screw Hogan like they did before? uh, Just to play off of Ventura's popularity? Or what's the thinking here? Well, Jesse was that quasi, he was a heel commentator, but he was also kind of a quasi babyface. People loved him so much because of his quick wit and his commentary style. Plus, he had done a couple movies. He had done The Running Man. He had done Predator. So he was also a star outside of the wrestling genre. So it was just a way to add more star power to that match and create more questions around the outcome. His famous line from the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, predator do you remember i ain't got time to bleed i think we need an andre the giant shirt with just like an afro and it says i ain't got time to poop uh had the problems with hogan and ventura already started here uh what was their relationship like at this point i you know i don't know that they were going to go out and, and be buds and hang out in the bar and have a beer together but you know, everybody was professional and worked worked well together, but I don't know that they were best of friends. Briefly share with everyone what their beef was all about, because I'm sure a lot of people are hearing this for the first time and are like, what are you talking about? 
Well, as the legend goes, and I wasn't there at the time, but as the legend goes, Jesse was trying to uh, rally the boys and create a union for the wrestlers. And Hogan overheard it and informed Vince that Jesse was trying to rile people up and start a union, which they didn't want in the wrestling businesses. They want to view everyone as an independent contractor. So that's where the beef started. All right, so there you go. Lots of people have wanted to know. Was that rumor or innuendo? But now we know uh, something that was interesting to me, at least, is the similarities between the first WrestleMania and the first SummerSlam. What do you got, Bruce? Can you think of anything off the top of your head? I don't think it was anything that was done intentionally. It was just simply another way to give an attraction without giving away what people were still paying for in the live live house shows, the live events. Well, both were at Madison so, Square Garden. Both have Hulk Hogan on top, and uh, both feature main events with tag matches. And obviously, his second pay per view, his being Vince uh, Survivor Series, is nothing but tag matches for a guy who we have always heard supposedly hates tag matches. Uh, no, he, sh- he hates tag teams. Okay, well, he started his yep. two biggest pay per view franchises with tag matches, and I guess three of his biggest four. Why do you think Vince had a change of heart about the tag match situation? Well, it's not a change of heart. It's simply, again, to give a different attraction than what they're giving in the house shows. And the house shows were usually personal issues and one-on-one matches and main events to take those same issues and angles and meld them together for a national attraction. You didn't want to, for example, if the main event in your house shows going across the country is DiBiase and Hulk Hogan. You don't want to put that on pay-per-view so that everybody can watch it at one time all across the country. You want to change it up a bit so that they still want to go and see the live event, but give them a separate different attraction on pay-per-view that they can enjoy. I hear you in theory, but uh, we've just ran through uh, over an hour of house shows where DiBiase is working a tag match with either Andre or Virgil, and he's working it against Hogan and a partner. Now, that partner was never Macho Man. It was always somebody else. But don't hang your hat on that. You just said it was about singles matches, and now... It's about personal issues, but again, it's it's attraction-driven. And if you, if you, had, if you gave them Duggan and Hulk here, they've seen it. Uh, well, what's the difference to, you between... You just want to give them a different attraction. What's the difference between a match and an attraction? Because I feel like that's one of your buzzwords on our show. Explain to everybody what an attraction is, because I feel like it's just a word you fucking make up and hang your hat on. No, an attraction is, especially at that time, you have to understand it's different times. For You're looking at it in the same business as the business is today, where what they present on their specials, which are no longer, they're not relying on a pay-per-view revenue, because it's all on the network now, they can do it. They can, they're going for ratings. So the matches that you see on TV and the matches that you see on their specials are usually one in the same. You see a lot of it. At that time, our bread and butter was house shows, live events. So the issues and angles that you had in the live events, those matches were set to draw houses and to make money for the live events. The pay-per-view event was something that was going nationally that you wanted to create an attraction that was different than the attraction that you had in the live events. Similar, 
using the same stars, using the same angles, but creating something that was different so that you don't give the same attraction that you're giving in the live events on pay-per-view. Just to be different. You got you didn't want to give that because then you're satisfying if I'm in Sheboygan and I have a live show coming to my area, you want them to buy a ticket. But if I can just sit at home and watch it on pay-per-view, I'm going to do that. But if it's a different attraction, maybe I'll buy both. But in an attraction t-shirt. Okay. Back to SummerSlam, the mega powers get the win about 14 minutes in after both guys hit their finishers on DiBiase. The high spot everyone remembers though is when Miss Elizabeth needed to use a distraction herself. Not an attraction, but she is one world tied. Uh, to give her team a chance and to take control of the match. She does this by getting on the apron and ripping off her skirt to reveal her panties. Uh, the heels are of course, distracted by this. This allows Hogan and Savage to capitalize. Randy hits the elbow drop off the top. Hogan hits the leg drop and gets the pin. Hogan must pose. Uh, we talk about this on our mega powers episode also available in the archives, but remind us again. Who comes up with this finish and how were Randy and Liz with it? Because we've heard all the rumor and innuendo that Randy was just crazy protective of Miss Elizabeth. And here he's got her stripping down to her drawers on pay-per-view. Well, first of all, it wasn't her drawers. She was wearing a red bathing suit. This was the other funny thing about this. If you remember the promos leading up to it, it was, you know, the itsy bitsy teeny weeny polka dot bikini, you know? Yellow polka dot between. Maybe it'll be yellow and red. Oh, yeah. That was the promos all leading up to it. That the secret weapon was the itsy bitsy, teeny weeny, yellow and red polka dot bikini. And <clears throat> then she takes it off. And, and essentially, she's wearing a red one piece swimsuit that was not revealing in any way, shape, or form. And. It were it was things like that, those kind of finishes sometimes that I just used to go, God damn, that's it. Well, what's interesting to me is here her being in granny panties is like this risque thing for WWE TV. Right. But but a decade later, y'all are talking Jackie and showing them them chocolates on paper. Chocolate titties. Calm down, Bruce. What's wrong with you? I like chocolate. Uh, coming I like on. titties. <laughs> if only. No, no, there's no. There's a way. No, calm down. <laughs> calm we can down. get them together. Calm down. Uh, coming off SummerSlam, Hogan works with you Dibiase. You put your titties in my chocolate. You put your chocolate on my titties. I know. <laughs> what are we going to Somehow, people are listening. them together. Chocolate titties for everyone. People can hear us right now. You know that, right? You're not. You're not recording. You're not gonna play this shit. Uh, coming off SummerSlam, Hogan works with DiBiase in September through Florida and Massachusetts. Their September 10th match in Boston was actually televised on the NSN network. Uh, and this is a match where we see the Hulk Hogan war bonnet involved. Uh, Bruce, remind everyone what you nicknamed that helmet again. Fist fucker. 
Uh, the next day in East Rutherford, New Jersey, <laughs> Hogan was working with Bad News Brown, and this is the match that aired on the MSG Network. It's probably the match a lot of our listeners have seen. Uh, this one, again, is uh, one with the war bonnet involved. Hypothetically, if Vince McMahon were trying to sell Hogan on this helmet, what would that sound like? I, I can't even do it because Vince hated that helmet so fucking much and did not even realize that Hogan was doing promos with the helmet and the fucking uh, motorcycle gas tank and all that shit for, for a while. And when he saw it, it was like, God damn, Terry, that shit's just not working. <laughs> but it was something that, that Hulk had been doing, and it was amazing some of the shit you could get by Vince if he you just kind of kept him away from the TV. Move along, nothing to see here. Hogan is back with DiBiase in September for Michigan, Chicago, and Landover. He worked with Haku on the 18th in Toronto, and the next day he beat Big Boss Man by countout in New Haven. Uh, the finish to that match was pretty creative, and they would do it through the rest of the year. Uh, Boss Man tries to use his handcuffs to cuff Hogan, but somehow Hogan manages to get them, and instead cuffs Boss Man to the top rope and then clotheslines him over the top. This prevents Bossman from being able to climb back in the ring, and therefore he's counted out. They used this finish a lot in the last quarter of the year. Uh, who would have been the agents here in '88 coming up with a pretty creative finish like this? I'd give that one to Pat Patterson. I love that. Uh, Bossman gets to work with Hogan for the rest of the month and on into October. They're in Miami, Madison, Springfield, Rockford, and Fort Wayne. The Fort Wayne show was actually a TV taping where Brother Love had Hulk Hogan on his show. Uh, the big boss man and Slick eventually come in, and boss man hits Hogan in the throat with his nightstick. Hogan goes down and starts grasping onto the guardrail just for support. Boss man cuffs him on the guardrail, and eventually Hulk gets back to his feet and chases the heels off while carrying the guardrail and the nightstick. Bruce, what are your memories of this Brother Love segment? Okay, is that all you got on that segment there? Yeah. Your notes? Okay. So it's funny. Did 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 anybody do uh, research with, with uh, your friend? What's that guy's name? One I hate? I don't hate him. Dave Meltzer? Well, okay, here's, yeah. Dave Milliken? No, I like Dave Milliken. You like Dave Milliken. I like Dave Milliken. DaveMillikenBelts.com, roll tide. Oh, hell. Okay. This, this, was, a, uh, this was Hulk's idea. And the idea behind it, Hulk had seen a kind of a, a riot scene where the cops had people handcuffed. It was, I believe it was in, in Paris or somewhere, but they had people handcuffed and the cops were just waylaying these people helplessly, um, just mercilessly beating them with their billy clubs and shit and just beating the shit out of them and the way they were flailing and everything. So it was Hulk's idea to, to cuff him and then boss man beat the shit out of him where he couldn't, couldn't go anywhere. We had to do it twice. We, we did it two nights in a row. And the first night that we did it, boss man went out. We did the, we did the whole nine yards. And when boss man whipped Hulk, Hulk basically died. And went down and, and sold like a son of a bitch. He just, he laid there and it wasn't, it just wasn't, I, I hate to use the word violent, but it wasn't violent enough. 
And when we watched it back, you know, Hulk came back and goes, man, I just wasn't feeling that. I don't know. But he goes, I think it needs to be more violent. We watched it, and Vince's take on it was that he hated seeing Hulk just lay there dead. Yeah. He wanted Hulk to have some kind of life. Right. So we shot it the next day. And we had a lot more camera movement and cuts to make it appear more violent. And a, a phrase that I coined many years later, if I don't have moving, at least give me the fucking illusion of movement. If they're not moving, then move the camera. So we did it the second night, and we added the uh, guardrail there to, to handcuff Hulk to. and just made it a lot more vibrant and moving and had Hulk up and down and up and down. Finally at the very end where Hulk kind of, at least he sold for boss man, boss man did the damage, but Hulk got up and and ran away with the uh, barrier over his head and like ripped the barrier apart and and gave chase to boss man, which kept Hulk Hulk alive and kept hope for the baby face that by God, if you know, if he wasn't handcuffed to this barrier, he could have got him. Yeah, he could have got him. So we had to do that deal twice, and that was the reason why. It just wasn't violent enough and wasn't wasn't what we were looking for that first time. And that was all Hogan's idea, and that was something that he, he felt very strongly about and, and liked the idea and pitched. Hogan and Bossman continue to headline. Uh, they're in Toledo, Houston, Portland, and then Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I mentioned that one specifically because this is Hogan's debut in Edmonton and they draw 15,000 fans. Hogan's been on top here for like more than four years. Why does it take this long to get Hogan into a market like Edmonton? Probably because he was all around it and just never, just never matched up. Well, they pop a huge number there in Edmonton. Uh, and the next day Hogan's working Haku in Oakland and then back to boss man in Tacoma. Here's something new for a lot of listeners. The King of the Ring 1988 was won by Ted DiBiase on October 16th in Providence, Rhode Island. He gets the win over Randy Savage by countout in the finals. Uh, and this King of the Ring tends to fly under the radar, Bruce. What do you remember about it? Well, it was something that we did in Providence. I think Harley Race was the first King of the Ring uh, when they had that tournament. It was something that they did locally. In Providence. And then um, I think from there, you know, we had the other kings and we made it a big part of the presentation. Um, later on became the pay-per-view. But it was it was strictly a house show deal. It was, it was, for the longest time, it was something they just did in Providence. Hogan's working back with Bossman in Vancouver and then Bad News in St. Paul. But the show I want to talk about is Hogan Andre. It's on October 23rd and it's at the... Omni in Atlanta. Uh, the WWF has tried now a few times in our show here to run a historically Jim Crockett area, and they're probably intentionally picking the biggest Crockett towns, Greensboro, Atlanta. So they put this Hogan Andre on top and nobody cares. It draws 5,200 people. Hogan Andre in Atlanta in a wrestling building. 5,200 folks was Vince just dead set on making this work. You saw the shit results in Greensboro. Why would he try this again in Atlanta at the Omni? He's dead set on making it work. 
What's the reaction to the boys who have always been trained to believe rightfully so, Hey, we're number one. We're top banana. We've got the cartoons. We've got the action figures. We've got the pay-per-views. We've got the car. We've got the dolls. We've got all the merchandise, the ice cream bars. We've got the magazine. We've got all this other, you know, income revenue coming in all these other revenue streams, but we're drawing 5,000 folks with Hogan Andre in Atlanta. So let's go stay everywhere else where we're drawing better, better, and our paychecks are bigger. So, so the boys, the boys probably are like, "What the fuck are we doing here? Why are we doing?" The boys, this? Are, the boys, anytime, anytime that something doesn't draw, the boys blame the office. Anytime that something doesn't draw, the office blames the boys. So it's a never-ending saga. It's at the end of the day, you know. Like I said, man, a damn new gas station opened up down the road. Let me ask but, you about this uh, new gas station here. Did you, Bruce yeah. Pritchard, blame? The boys for 52. This isn't Hogan Andre's fault. Dude, it's they didn't want to see it. They didn't want to see the product. The, but that's the office's fault for booking it in a building they shouldn't have been in. Well, how are you, you going to know if you don't book it? How well, you, you, just, you just did it in Greensboro. It didn't work. Greensboro and Atlanta are two completely different markets. Okay, let's talk about the next night in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This time they put Hulk Hogan on top. Only 2,100 folks show up to see the ultimate warrior, Mr. Perfect, honky talk, man, Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake and the red rooster. 2,100. Well, there you, there you go. Right there. You just said it right there. They probably put him on the damn poster. <laughs> uh, 2,100 folks in Pennsylvania, Hulk Hogan, like, made event. flies there or anything. I couldn't draw flies. Get it. Yeah. He can't draw 2,100 folks here. Pennsylvania, Hulk Hogan, main event, 1988. This kind of kills the narrative of the old sold out every night hanging from the rafters, doesn't it, brother? Well, there were a lot more sold out and uh, hanging from the rafters than not. Why does Hulk Hogan main event draw 2,100 in Hershey? Don't know. They didn't want to see it. You're so simplistic with this October but 25th, that's, but that's it. When it boils down to it, you can sit there and you can give every fucking excuse in the world. The bottom line is, is that those people in that town and whether it was a promotion or whether it was the attraction, no matter what it was, those people didn't want to leave their house well, and go fucking see it. No money shit. To see it. The question I'm asking you and the purpose of this podcast is to figure well, out why was it well, because the office knew that. If we knew that and had a crystal ball, then we would have fixed it. You haven't learned 30 years later. That's what we're discussing 30 years later with the benefit of hindsight. Can you look back possibly and maybe consider the idea that once in his entire natural born life, Vince McMahon did something poorly or was it just There's a lot of times? Well, how about this one running in Atlanta and then the next day, Drawing shit in Hershey. He took Hershey for granted. Didn't draw shit the night before that ran a town. He shouldn't have been in booked a big building, put his best card on top. Couldn't draw flies with fucking shit. Why can't we just admit, Hey man, this was a miss. We shouldn't have been there. Instead it's, Oh, they opened a new gas station. No, it was a miss. But my point is, is you can make excuses all day long. The bottom line is, is people didn't want to see it, but if they wanted to see it, no shit. Why would, why, why did they want to say probably already seen it? They'd seen it for free on the main event. They had seen it already before that. So the office fucked it up. 
whoever fucked it up booking the attraction it didn't work it the attraction didn't work. there it is i'm gonna fucking punch it you next time i see you. the attraction october 25th is another saturday night's main event taping hogan beats haku in about six minutes um i know you're not going to tell me specifics i've already you know grown to have that beaten into my head now but were Saturday night main events paydays bigger than normal for the boys? What I mean specifically is how would they compare to a regular house show payoff or a pay-per-view payday? If you were on the, if you were on the show, yes, it was, it was bigger. How much bigger, a little bigger than a house show, a little smaller than a pay-per-view is a pay-per-view always number one Saturday night's main event. Number two sold out house show. Number three. Yeah, I'd say roughly like that. Okay, it's worth mentioning this Andre Hogan main event we covered from February did that 15 rating. Well, this one, just eight months later, does an eight. Um, it feels like business is falling here a little bit, Bruce. Do you blame this on the card, the time slot, because it's not a Friday, it's a Saturday, or is this the beginning of the downswing? No, it's, it's, you're comparing apples to pomegranates because it's the time slot and a different show. So you're going late night late night television on a weekend versus a prime time slot in during the week. So well, it, it, I'm also it's saying because the day before they drew 2100 in Hershey, it feels like a downswing to me, but I'm sure I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, You're wrong. Yeah. Nobody's coming to the shows or watching on TV, but it's definitely not a downswing. It, it, it was an eight rating, which is great in late night television. Well, it was half of what it was eight months before, but it's fine. You can't compare the number of people watching television on a late night Saturday night to the number of people watching television in prime time. Yeah, because I, Lord knows, Lord knows, if it's an Alabama game and it's on a Thursday night, I ain't fucking watching. It's got to be Saturday afternoon, two o'clock for me. If it was, if it was eleven thirty at night, there wouldn't be as many people watching. So. Okay, we'll come back. But but look at it. The number of people watching television on Saturday night versus the number of people watching television on Friday in prime time is drastically different. I'm not arguing that, but I, I feel like you're in a situation. So you can't not- compare a show that airs Saturday night at 1130 to a show that airs on Friday night at 8 o'clock. Okay, I'll give you that. Um, let's just freestyle this for a minute. What we're talking about right here is October, where it gets an 8.7. They did one in March. It did a 10. Uh, the previous the March, March. The March one was a main event, was it not? No, it's February. It does an 8.7 here. A year prior in October, it did a 9.7. The October prior to that, it did a 9.4. Still not a downswing. It was down a point. Well, that's not down. Okay. Oh my God. The bottom was falling out. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. God, it's wor- it was the worst thing ever. It was. I agree. I it's, mean, uh, 21. Close the fucking doors. Hulk Hogan in 1988 drew 2,100 people with Mr. Perfect and the Ultimate Warrior and Hockey Talk Man on the undercard. Oh, and Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake in Pennsylvania. And you're like, business is fine. We were making money. All right. We should have just shut the fucking doors on that same taping Saturday night's main event. There's another macho man, miss Elizabeth promo. And this time it's on the brother love show. Hogan comes out and runs you off and they do the big pronounced mega powers handshake, man. That handshake was such a big part of wrestling for those of us, my age who grew up on this era, 
what can you tell us about this creation of this silly handshake we all love so much 30 years later? Milk it. You go for the handshake and you put the hand, but don't shake it right away. You got to milk it. And just when you think you've waited long enough, wait a little longer. And then the hand starts shaking and your arm starts quivering. And then finally, finally, the mega powers unite. That's all we need to play that over and over and over again. On the uh, 28th of October, the WWF ran Greensboro again. Apparently, they were allergic to profit. They only draw 2,000 this time, and they put as many familiar faces on the card as possible. Uh, Terry Taylor, Arn and Tully, Sam Houston, the Barbarian, and Hogan is on top here, tagging with Hercules against DiBiase and Virgil. Uh, why does Vince keep doing this if it's not working? Well, he put all your guys on there, Arn and Tully and Sam Houston and Barbarian and the Red Rooster. They're such big stars in Greensboro. Why the hell didn't they draw? Because they didn't promote those guys. They said WWF's coming to town. Well, no, you said they put all these guys loaded up the card with all these great guys from the Carolinas, from Greensboro, that people wanted to see so bad, then they should have drawn. Would you like for me to That's pull- probably why. So you're suggesting that the NWA in October of 88 was drawing less than 2,000 people in Greensboro? Well, obviously, their stars didn't draw that there, so I don't know. Their stars? Yeah, I don't, yeah. See, I don't see Ric Flair or Dusty Rhodes on this. I see the Red Rooster, a guy you've made a buffoon of on TV for a year. You got you got Red Rooster and Arn and Tully. Arn and Tully were brand new champions. Were, were the champs already by this point? I don't know. I love you for that. Uh, why would Hercules get the tag spot with Hogan here? It was after his turn, babyface, and brother, a little dust. Little <laughs> dust. I love it. Uh, Hogan was in Fort Myers. I got enough of that shit in my hair. My hair's falling out. No more dust for the macho man. Uh Put it on somebody else. Hogan's in Fort Myers two days later, and they draw a huge house on November 4th with Big Boss Man. Again, they're in Milwaukee. Over 18,000 fans show up. Earlier this year, we talked about you guys running a stadium show here in Milwaukee. Why was this such a hot market for you? This is fascinating from a business perspective to me that you're in a historic, great wrestling town like Greensboro, North Carolina, and you draw 2000 folks. You're in Hershey, Pennsylvania, a staple of the WWF market. You draw 2,100. You're in Atlanta, Georgia, and a historic wrestling business, the Omni hotbed of wrestling, 5,200 folks. You go to fucking Milwaukee and, and, and do a stadium show and come back a few months later and do 18,000. Why was Milwaukee so hot in 1988? Milwaukee was also a hotbed for Vern and for those guys there. Milwaukee, Chicago, Minneapolis. Those were hotbeds for the AWA. That was a hotbed wrestling market as well. And it just continued to be. It was a good market. Well, no doubt it was Ain't, ain't a lot to do in Milwaukee. Oh, uh, boy, are we going to get tweets on that? Hogan Bossman continued to do well through Champaign, Toronto, and Ottawa. The Long Island show on November 11th saw Hogan body slam Brother Love. And I don't even think this was for TV. Uh, Bruce, how often did you guys do Brother Love segments just for the live house? And how was your body slam, brother? Well, it was whenever 
And at this at this point in time, it was something else. But whenever, like during the summers, a lot of times, Vince would give me two to three months to go out on the road and kind of get out of the office and go do Brother Love shows on the road for the weekends. And it was kind of a reward for me to just get out of the office and vacation of sorts. And so it was few and far between. And then there were times when Hulk was going to be available for different things and didn't necessarily want to put Hulk in a match or he didn't have anybody to work with, put him with brother love, beat the shit out of brother love. I had heat and people always like to see me get my ass kicked. Uh, Probably still to this day, they like to see me get my ass kicked. Well, we're going to find out soon enough at one of the live shows, but I won't say which one. Hogan continues the tour with boss man. They work Philly and San Fran. And then on the 16th of November, they're in Sacramento. Uh, they're here for another Saturday night's main event taping. And this is where we see Hogan back on the brother love show. Slick got the business from Hulk Hogan. And then Hulk pulled a pair of handcuffs out of his knee pad, cuffed you to the top rope and clotheslines you over the top and watching the tape back. Even all this time later, this looks painful. It's on the network right now. If you would like to check it out, uh, the date is November 26, 1988. That's when it airs on Saturday night's main event. And the show closes with a video montage of clips from this segment on the brother love show. Bruce, it looked rough. Tell us about it. Light as a feather. Uh, I'd never taken that bump before. And Marty Janetti showed me how to take it that day. Marty and Sean but mainly Marty. I was scared to death and I asked Hulk, I said, please make sure that I get over. And he said, don't worry, brother, you'll get over. That was kind of, that was Hulk and Randy talking to me at the same time. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, your wrist though, this did not look comfortable for your wrist. Oh, I did that, but I didn't see, I didn't, I didn't do that until I was already there and hung. So the bump was fine. I had the top rope on the bump, but once I was on the floor, I hung myself. Uh, considering, I mean, this is assault. Brother Love has a benefactor. Uh, the boss man Hogan matches continue through LA, St. Louis and Cincinnati. We're finally at the second annual survivor series happens on November 24th, 1988. We're in Richfield and the Richfield Coliseum. And I'm sure we're going to have a full show on this at some time in the future. Let's talk about the Hogan stuff specifically here. Of course, the mega powers are in the main event. They're here with Coco beware, Hercules and hillbilly Jim. They're taking on Akeem, big boss man, the million dollar man, the red rooster and Haku. This has to be the only main events of Coco beware and red rooster of the WWF careers. Don't you think? Uh, obviously Hogan and Savage end up being the sole survivors of the match. And during the match, Akeem handcuffs Hogan to the bottom rope and the baby faces are in trouble without Hulk. Eventually miss Elizabeth gets the keys and unlocks Hogan just in time for Savage to make the hot tag. And Hogan makes the save to win the match with a leg drop on Haku. Hogan starts celebrating with Elizabeth. Uh, he actually picks her up and gives her a hug. Gorilla even says a big hug for Elizabeth. And this seemingly upsets Randy Savage. Uh, Bruce, where do you think that Miss Elizabeth got the key here? God damn, she's from Kentucky. We always carry a spare goddamn handcuff key, motherfucker. 
Where do you get your handcuff keys from? It's better than I expected. Uh, after this, we're back to Hogan Bossman in Hartford, Madison Square Garden, Indianapolis, Quebec, Boston, Montreal, and Hamilton. Uh, on Dece- keys are us. <laughs> on December 7th, we really ramp up the Mick Powers angle uh, at the Saturday night's main event taping. I myself up. <laughs> I can tell you were tickled with that one. Now, now, this wouldn't air until January, but we're going to cover it here. Hogan has Miss Elizabeth with him, and he's taking on Akeem. But Akeem brought the big boss man and Slick to the ring with him. Eventually, there's a ref bump, so he's down, and that allows boss man to interfere, and it becomes two-on-one. We cut away to see Mean Gene watching all of this on a monitor with Randy Savage. Randy says something like, it's Hulk Hogan. He'll be okay. Eventually, Liz sees enough of this and runs from ringside to the backstage area to find Randy to beg him to come help Hulk. They're hurting him, she says. Randy refuses to help and says he'll be okay. He looks at the monitor and says, come on, Hulk. As Mean Gene sells the horror that's happening on the monitor as these dastardly heels put the boots to Hulk Hogan. Elizabeth comes back out to the ring. And by this point... Hulk is hulking up to the point that he takes out the boss man, Slick, and even body slams Akeem. Hogan even starts to dance like Akeem, and at that point, we see Randy watching the monitor saying something like, I knew it! I knew it! Uh-huh. When Hogan is about to pin Akeem, the boss man hits him with the nightstick in the back, the ref calls for the DQ, and the heels start piling on Hogan after the bell. They're putting the boots to him, hitting him with the nightstick, and Miss Elizabeth has seen enough. She gets in the ring to try to help. Bossman breaks out the handcuffs and actually cuffs Miss Elizabeth. This is enough to bring Randy Savage out with a chair and clear the ring of all the heels. Elizabeth is now checking on the injured Hogan, and this annoys Randy Savage to the point that whenever she does so, he snatches her back in his direction. As they make their way to the back, Ventura says something like, I smell a rat with the mega powers, McMahon. There's something happening here. So later we see a backstage interview on that same show where Mean Gene asks about the quote unquote speculation that there's friction within the mega powers. Hogan dismisses this and says that when the chips were down, his brother, Randy Savage came to his rescue. Let that be a lesson kids. If somebody refers to another person in wrestling as their brother, when something suspicious happened, fixes in. Hogan says they breathe the same air, drink the same water. They're one and the same. So when Hogan was hurting, Savage felt it. Savage agrees and says that handcuffing Elizabeth was what it took. Hogan referred to Elizabeth as lovely multiple times here, at least three or four. And after the interview is done, Ventura says, McMahon, that's a cover up. That's worse than Watergate. Now we've covered all of this on our mega powers episode, which is in the archives, but it has to be, at least in my opinion, one of the best storylines the company ever did. Would you agree with this, Bruce? Yeah, the whole thing from the lit. There were just so many little nuanced details that we, we talk about in the Mega Powers episode that made the entire story just superb. Everything meant something. And if you thought it then, we explained it all at the very end. It was it was great. It truly was, man. It was just the the nuances that made it. This particular evening, though, any time that somebody else was going to touch Liz, Randy got a little crazy. 
in real know, life in real in real life yeah just it was he was just so damn overprotective that especially one of the boys you know having to grab her and and do some kind of physicality and there was never really any physicality to Liz but having to grab her and handcuff her he was just didn't want didn't want her to be hurt in any way and wasn't wasn't always crazy about that he did business and and was fine but he was just overprotective Hogan and Bossman will work together through all of December, including shots in Miami, Jacksonville, Kansas City, Denver, Oakland, Los Angeles, Tacoma, Landover, Wheeling, Minneapolis, Cedar Rapids, and Chicago. And then eventually they shut it down on December 18th for a week for Christmas. And the guys had Christmas Day off, but not really. I say all that because they worked six shows on December 26th. You hear me? Six shows in a single day. Even Andre had to work twice this day, both against Jake Roberts in the main event. The Hulkster only worked once that week, though, brother, against uh, Big Boss Man in Landover. Uh, Bruce, explain why working so many shows the day after Christmas makes so much sense. Because so many people will hear this and say, oh, they should have been home with their families. But Money season. And, and let's be clear, that was three different crews. Sure working two shows a day so it wasn't you know one guy working six shows it was everybody worked two shows it were double shots but this and is purposeful it's the only time of the year that the company ran six shows on one day and it happens the day after christmas the reason this makes sense is because wrestling tickets could be christmas presents am i right oh hell yeah christmas man the holidays back in the old days the holidays were the money season and around christmas and thanksgiving those were always great times of the year. That week between Christmas and New Year's, Monday. It still is. All these years later, 30 years later, it's almost a Christmas tradition that they're going to run Madison Square Garden either on Christmas or the day after. It's a really big deal. And, and for, for many years, the A-Town, you would usually run uh, Canada on December 26th. It allowed the guys to have Christmas off. But it was still a holiday in Canada because it was Boxing Day in Canada. So you're getting the benefit of a holiday in Canada, but the boys still get Christmas off. Hogan would close out his 88 by working two shows on New Year's Eve, both with Boss Man, one in Springfield and one at Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. I found it fitting that when I think about Hogan in 88, I think of that main event on NBC with Andre the Giant from February. That was at Market Square Arena, and that's where he finished 1988 as well. Uh, Bruce, what moment from 88 do you remember the most about Hulk Hogan? That's it, man, the main event. That, that kind of put that whole year in a nutshell, and it was a magical moment. It was a big night for us and the greatest finish I've ever seen. Well, chat me up. How would you rank 1988 for Hulk Hogan? This was your first full year there, but you saw most of 87, all of 89, all of 90, and a lot of 91. Where would you put Hulkamania in 1988 on that list? Wow. Uh, You know, it was a great year. It was my first real full year of Hulkamania, if you will, being there and being a part of that. And it was pretty incredible. Even with the summer off, man, just the the drawing power of Hogan, it was an incredible sight to see. And everything else, crossover with the movies and just all that other shit that he did, man, it was just larger than life. 
It's worth mentioning in 1988, 485,000 people bought WrestleMania, 400,000 people bought SummerSlam, and 310,000 people bought Survivor Series. WrestleMania was up, SummerSlam was up, Survivor Series was down a little. But across the board, 1989 would be through the roof by comparison. Um, but we will cover that another time. Any fun stories or insight we may have missed from Hulk Hogan's 1988 that you could think of, Bruce? Not that I can think of that we specifically missed. Uh, let's get to this week's uh, poll topics. Number one, are you ready, Bruce? I'm ready. The WWE Hall of Fame. We've had lots of requests about this one, and I found it fitting. Our next show is going to be on Friday, June the 9th. And the very first Hall of Fame was held 23 years ago on June 9th. What might we talk about if the Hall of Fame wins next week's poll? The entire idea behind the Hall of Fame. Who should be first, who and why people would be inducted into it. And we'll also talk about the actual physical Hall of Fame. Where it was going to be, the plans for it, and the whole dynamic of what took place or the physical Hall of Fame that fell through in later years. But that should be interesting because a lot of people got opinions on who should be and who shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Poll topic number two, Sable. 18 years ago, she sued the company for $110 million on June the 7th. What might we talk about if Sable wins the poll as poll topic number two? Marco! Marrow! And everything that took place behind the scenes, the whole controversy with Sable and Sonny and the ladies backstage, the introduction of China. Um, there's quite a bit in the Sable saga along the way. Call topic number three, who blew up Mr. McMahon? It's hard to believe, but it happened 10 years ago on June the 11th. Uh, of course, we all remember Vince McMahon's uh, limo exploded. There may or may not have been a firing because of what happened on his way to the limo. And then while we didn't see the continuation of it, we've got a famous t-shirt that's available now at BrucePritchard.com. I wouldn't be TV. wouldn't be on TV if I was dead. What might we talk about if we talk about who blew up Mr. McMahon? Well, I think that you can't talk about it without explaining that whole scenario. Why we even went there and the storyline where we wanted to go with it and why eventually we couldn't go with it and why it had to end very abruptly. I think everybody knows that, but there was a lot of buildup to that and just go through all of that ad nauseum, I'm sure. Last but certainly not least, one of our most requested topics that's finally here. It's the 15-year anniversary. It happened on June 10th. Steve Austin walks out. What might we talk about if Steve Austin walking out wins the poll next week? Well, obviously, we're going to talk about the time that Steve took his ball and went home. And it's been documented a lot of times. We'll get to the behind-the-scenes scenario behind it. We'll also talk about, even in more detail than what we discussed on the Eric Bischoff show last week, about finding Steve and bringing him back into the fold and all that that took place between Eric and Steve as well. So that should be a lot of fun. So go vote for our poll right now. If you haven't already, you need to follow us on Twitter to do so. The show account is at Pritchard Show, and the poll is up right now. You can also follow Bruce. He is on Twitter at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad, but the account you really need to follow in order to vote is at Pritchard Show. 
We would also encourage you to join our forum. It's whwradio.com. You can ask some questions there, interact with other listeners to the show, and it gives you a few more characters if you'd like to type something a little longer than what Twitter will allow. But a Twitter address again, at Pritchard Show. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.